does have it all. All of our pre-owned vehicles are Hubler Q certified, which include a 128-point vehicle inspection, a free Carfax vehicle history report, and two warranties. A two-year, 100,000-mile powertrain warranty and a 30-day, 1,000-mile comprehensive warranty. Visit any of our 13 locations today or click drivehubler.com. There have been there have been drafts where I thought, well, just overall, it's it's an okay draft, and it ended up producing a lot more players. If you look at the analytics, it says there are seven really good picks in every draft. Now that's a very general statement. You know, picking seven, I think we're going to get a good player. I think at worst we're getting a rotational guy. At best, we're getting a starter. But it's not the number one pick either. I mean, I'm not trying to fool you into saying it's even close to that. Under 32 hours from the NBA draft, Jimmy Cook, Scott Agnes, Eddie Garrison behind the ones and twos. Happy Wednesday to you here on the fan. The tension is finally getting palpable a bit. 62 pre-draft workouts for the Indiana Pacers. Scott Agnes of the fan and of Fieldhouse Files was a part of the media portion of many of those workouts. And Scott, why I'm so excited we're able to have you in here today and why we're also going to have you here on Monday for rapid reaction to everything NBA draft is to get those insights and observations. We'll cover a lot of ground in this first segment and throughout the show, including the local ties like Trace Jackson Davis, like Jalen hood Shafino. But I want to begin first right out of the gate with the question on everybody's mind, and you don't have this answer just yet, but I have no doubt that you will the closer we get to the draft, which is that seventh pick, and as it continues to be an enticing point of conversation for where the Pacers go, if they decide to trade and get that set-it-and-forget-it starter, find their wing answer, and not worry about rookie development necessarily, or if there's somebody that truly has caught their eye, while we await that answer from your observations, from your conversation, was there somebody off the bat in these pre-draft workouts that you look at and you say, yeah, that's an Indiana Pacer, that fits what Kevin Pritchard, what Rick Carlisle are trying to build here? Not necessarily from the workouts or the glimmers of it you were able to see, but just from the conversations, the one-on-ones you had. Yeah, yeah, because one one misnomer, I think, and, and by the way, good to see Jimmy and, and you as well, Eddie, here, is that we're, we're in on these workouts and we get observed. No, not at all. Right. At best, we'll see Rick when he pulls the guy aside afterwards or a player like Trace wants to get more shots up along the perimeter. And I think that was probably a little bit by design with 19 media members there. By far, Jimmy, more media members that were at any Pacers practice or any Pacers game, I think, this season. But afterwards, you know, let me show that I can knock down that three-pointer. Otherwise, it's all entirely just seeing them interact with um, team executives and scouts afterward. A lot of them. See, I love this time, Jimmy, because they're not jaded yet, and they're still green. And so they're coming along. They're going down the the line of executives and scouts. Let's call it 25 different individuals shaking every one of their hands, most of them, and looking them in the eye. They meet Chrissy, uh, one of the PR people. Hey, I'm, I'm you know Grady. Nice to meet you. Here, we'll take you over here to PR. And then they go along to the few media members right. that are there and introduce themselves. And so it's a fun experience, and I don't take it for granted as well because the other thing I think fans should know is it's not like this most places. Most teams don't even even announce who they bring in none of that so it's all about talking with agents talking with uh team officials to try to get a a sense of who they've brought in who looked good that sort of thing now for us the guy i've said for several weeks now and i'm staying with that if he's available at seven i would go jarris walker 
that's who I like the most. I, I think he'll probably be best available there unless you're really taking a reach on a guy that's, you know, raw athleticism, hadn't shown a ton, much like we saw right with like a Giannis, right. you know, in, in mid-teens where it's like, this could be a project, high upside, or there's nothing here. Uh, I think we already have seen a lot from Jairus Walker. I love his versatility. I love his defense, how he's more of a four than a three, but can also slide down and defend twos. Um, an incredible rebounder as well. And Defense run rebounding, as we've seen for the last several years at least. That's what they got to improve upon. So for me, based on how we expect everything to go, Jairus Walker is my number one guy. In, in, or Go ahead. I was going to say, I, I really like Jairus Walker. I do, and I think yep. he would fit a clear need for this team. The only knock on him, just from nationally and from his scouting report, is... The three-point shooting percentage leaves a little bit to be desired. The free-throw shooting percentage is fine. But again, it's those air markers of where you're trying to judge a freshman on what he can become at the next level. Is that fixable? Is it developable? Because if it's not, and you look at where Jairus Walker would likely line up with this team, what I don't want to have happen is somebody with size that you're putting at the three or four that would convolute things to a point that you don't have the type of floor spacers that you need. When you've talked to either those within the front office or you've talked to people nationally about Jairus Walker, is that a real concern or is it like every scouting report, you're going to have your pros and you need some weaknesses to fill the content? Is that a legitimate concern of if he can add a consistent three-point jumper to his game? Not quite the point of Trace Jackson Davis where he didn't take them, but yeah, he's we didn't taken even get enough an opportunity right, to see those. Right. You, you, have, you, you have at least a sample size on Walker to look at. Right. No, I don't think there's any great concern like this is a red flag. Right. It's definitely not one of his pros. Right. I think he's shown the ability to shoot it. That's one of the things he's tried to highlight during these workouts. And I think he finished with about six workouts. I know Taylor Hendricks uh, had six workouts, including with the Pacers. He's another uh, reasonable choice. For the team at seven, he scares me a little bit in that he had this huge jump in one season. Yeah, and so is there more jumps coming, or is this who he is? And and it's crazy. The thing I laugh about going to these workouts, Jimmy, is we get uh, a, a list of who's who's participating, some stats as well, and it includes their birthday. And it's a real reality check when you see these guys. Grady Dick, I'm looking at now. November 2003. These guys didn't even experience Y2K. <laughs> There's very few, Jimmy, that are even in the 90s. Well, so you, you've been covering the Pacers in some capacity <laughs> for the better part of, what, 12 years now? Yeah, this will be my 12th season, but even back with internships, right. I was covering the draft four years before that. So you're, yeah. you're just really walking into, like myself and Eddie are to some extent, of the shell shock of seeing a, bir- a birthday that surprises you, right? There's a lot of people mm-hmm. in this market that, and in general, when you cover sports, eventually that moment hits you, yeah. and the fastest opportunity for it to arrive is in these pre-draft workouts where you look at it and you're like, oh, man, 2003, 2004, this and, is this And is because crazy. who are all these elite pl- prospects that are likely available at s- seven for the Pacers? Well, it's generally first year, one-and-done guys. It's 19-year-olds. There's even an 18. Gigi Jackson, youngest guy in all of this. And I'll tell you what, from the, the these draft workouts, he did a really interesting thing that I, I assume was by design from conversations with his close people, his agents, etc. And Jimmy, that's he admitted his errors. He, he humbled himself and acknowledged, hey, I went on Instagram Live, said things about my team. I learned stuff. Hey, I, you know, I disrespected my coach a couple times. I learned from that. This dude's 18. So you're going to expect that. Like, imagine yourself right at 18, and if you were the top prospect, 
where you're coming from. So rather than avoiding that or, you know, I've moved past that. Let's not talk about that. He hit that head on. So he's the guy for me, for example, really interested in if they do end up keeping uh, some of those late first round picks or pick 32. I don't expect for them to keep them all, but someone like him, I could see them taking one guy, very raw, very big upside, going to need a couple of years because they, ahead of that, will have already taken and have the core that they're building for. But one last point as we kind of set the, set the stage for all this that I want to emphasize once more. This is the third straight year where the Pacers have been part of the lottery. Yeah. Chris Duarte a couple of years ago. Benedict Matherin last year. Good draft picks. Both very good. Matherin has already become, I think, a pillar along with Halliburton for what this franchise is going to be. They'll draft at seven or or potentially trade it. I don't think that'll be the case, but we'll see. Most of that stuff gets further down the road tomorrow, even if it happens. But assuming they take that pick, then hopefully that's it for a decade. Hopefully we're not talking about the Pacers in the lottery until 2032. Or some, which sounds astronomical, <laughs> sounds right. as as crazy as 1999 player, players born in 2003. But I think it's important to now shift our expectations that this is not the cute, fun team. This is not, oh, we'll see. You know, oh, over under 24 and a half. No, none of that. To me, and I'm not talking expectations in terms of can they get the play in? Can they get the eight seed? To me, I think they should very much be in play, bearing injuries, for fifth, sixth yes. in the East. Now, it's a very early to talk about it because we don't know how the rosters have shaped up. But that's one important point that I want to stress here going in because we need to reset the expectations and now, after this, hold the Pacers accountable. There's obviously always a sense of urgency in that front office to be a competitive team, to put together a product that has an opportunity to contend for playoffs and be able to be a threat within the Eastern Conference. And that's not something they've been able to do clearly in the last couple of years with their yeah. time spent in the lottery. Is there a real sense of urgency with this draft because of that desire to get back? Not just that, hey, we're trying to build something special here and we're trying to one day get back there, but is there a sense of urgency to get there 12 months time? Like that's a legit conversation within that building of playing no, it's not what we want. We want to be a real threat within the Eastern Conference a year from now. Yes, I agree with that point. And, and a year from now is when you hope this team then becomes a contender. I think next year is about allowing guys like Tyrese Halliburton to experience the playoffs for the mm-hmm. first time. It's his fourth year. One thing that w- could happen coming up um, you know, after the draft and and leading into free agencies, Halliburton and the Pacers could agree to a contract extension. Presumably it would be a max deal. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be. But to have him locked down for the future and such moving forward. But you, after the, this year is about getting back into the fold, being part of the conversation. Quite honestly, Jimmy, being relevant again, beyond this market. I think that's, inc- that's critical. Then, with Matherin with two years under his belt, the seventh pick, Andrew Nemhart a couple of years under his belt. Halliburton, two full seasons of being the guy, hopefully being healthy and leading a team. Maybe Buddy Heald's still here, and I wouldn't rule that out. He experiencing the playoffs for the first time. He's a guy in his now in his 30s, has the longest drought of any player uh, who hasn't reached the postseason. I would love nothing more than for him to experience that. So in one year from now, I think we're probably talking about the Pacers again, Jimmy, drafting 
18th. Oh, now we're throwing that out. 18th. Right, it's just hypothetical. No, no, no. 18th is curse for the Pacers. TJ Leaf. We're not talking. No, 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 no. So they're going to draft 17th or 19th. Sure. <laughs> and this is coming after at least a first round playoff appearance. And that propels them forward to then hopefully be a contender in the Eastern Conference. The other conversation around the league right now is what's going to happen with two and three. What are Charlotte? Yes. And what are Portland going to do in terms of they're trying to trade back? If they're trying to make a true selection there, the trailblazers have a decision to make with Damian Lillard. He's mentioned that at least the rumblings have been, he doesn't want to be a part of another rebuild in Portland, which again, Dame's one of my favorite players in the league. I wish he would have had this realization five years ago, but hey, <laughs> whatever. Money's great, and Portland's taken very good care of him. What are the ripple effects if a trade occurs with two to three at all to the Pacers? Because we tried to find some ripples after the Suns made their deal to go get Bradley Beal, and it wasn't as far widely felt immediately. But obviously, if Portland makes a move with Damian Lillard yep. and they keep the pick, okay, that doesn't do much. But if they move the pick elsewhere, where are the ripples that potentially occur if there is movement at two to three in your mind? Yeah, that's where things get really interesting. We know what one is. I think that'll be special and enjoying. Uh, enjoying uh, we'll enjoy to watch that but this is why i wanted to have sean hyken coming up at two o'clock and by the way danny lopez at 12 30 we'll talk with over with the pacers and the nba all-star host committee as we now know all-star saturday night coming up in february we'll, we'll be hosted at lucas oil stadium and much more reasonable ticket prices and then coming up rafael barlow to discuss the draft at one o'clock to your question jimmy first of all at two charlotte i i think they are split they don't know what they're doing, yeah. and, I, and I believe that from people I've talked with. They see the the pros and cons of going both routes. I think they're more enamored with Scoot Henderson, but they see the highs of Brandon Miller. They see the value in wings more than guards. But Scoot, you, I think we know what he could become at minimum. We don't know that just yet from Brandon Miller. There's also, fair or not, that a little bit of a checkered past of things that even if he was an active participant in, Driving the car down at Alabama, he was there. You know, 2 a.m. shootings that took place, and I think he's mostly been clear to that. But that's questions he's answered every single time he talks either with the media and certainly uh, with teams. I think the big X factor in all this to start for both of those teams is where is New Orleans with Zion Williamson? Because I think for the first time, Jimmy, I think it is real too that Zion for the right price can be had. And that's where things get really interesting. Because if he was healthy, every team in the league would want him. But he, too, right now, has some things going on off the court (laughs) that I don't think we need to get into. On the court, he can't get there because he's not healthy. He's been perpetually overweight in terms of trying to be on the floor and have a successful career. He's also a big guy, and you worry about lower extremities, feet, knees, issues like that. Um, we saw them dismiss an assistant coach he was most close with in what, Teresa Weatherspoon, yeah. here this week. I don't know direct knowledge of that situation, but I could see something like, hey, if Zion's not going to be here, I don't want to be here either. And you've blocked me from previous other opportunities elsewhere, set me free. And so they did. I think New Orleans, along with Portland and Charlotte, have big decisions to make here. It starts with Charlotte. And <laughs> do they want Scoot? Do they want Brandon? Or... Do they deal that pick and get involved with New Orleans and try to restart with Zion, who's in Jordan Brand, 
By the way, and Michael Jordan, while he is He'll still have a minority se- share, he is selling the franchise. He's also retaining yeah. a minority portion. I think that's also good for him and good for the league as oh, yeah. well. Um, but he w- he's in Charlotte right now. They put Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson through workouts. They also have several other decisions to make. They expect to have Miles Bridges back this year after missing all of last year. I think he still has to sit out a handful of games. Uh, a little shortened suspension, I think, in my mind. I think 10 more games left mm-hmm. after they gave him 20, even though he wasn't signed to a team last year. That's a different conversation. But do, does Charlotte kind of rebuild and restart? Do they make this draft pick? Do they try to rebuild on the fly with Zion Williamson? It is all so interesting. And so, again, we'll we'll talk with Sean Hyken, who's on the Portland Trailblazers beat coming up at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And he wrote last night, I forwarded it to you, this is the biggest pivot point, big, biggest mark right now in Portland Trailblazers history. And that says a lot. It does say a lot. And we've said similar sentiment to some extent about the Pacers the last couple of years because you need to be perfect in these drafts to get to where they want to go as quickly as they want to go, right? If you miss on seven, if that's a clear, just right out of the gate miss, I'm not saying long-term it's a flop, but like if you take somebody like Jairus Walker and there were injuries unforeseen during the season and it derails things, that's not necessarily a mark on the front office, but it is something that holds you back and doesn't get you where you want to go. I'm just throwing out a hypothetical. There's no injury concerns with Jairus Walker, but there's pressure within the Pacers to get this right, to be in the position that you and I have talked about, that many have talked about on these airways, of being out of the lottery. Speaking of that seventh pick, I'm going to throw out the hypothetical that I've been throwing out the last couple of days. Again, this isn't something I think is going to happen, but the connection to him has been there since the deadline. OG Ananobi's availability will always be talked about while the Pacers have the ability to make trades because they at least inquired or it was reported they inquired and offered someone in the neighborhood of three first-round picks the deadline to try to make a deal get done. At least that was what the rumor mills said. Pacers obviously don't comment on trades that don't happen. <laughs> no. But let's just say for the sake of argument, that was the asking price from Toronto at the deadline was three first-rounders for OG Ananobi. It was Anobi. higher. It's higher than that. Okay. <laughs> that was the starting point. Give me, give me, I can tell you that. Give me a, a what the asking price probably was. Or we just Five first round picks. Okay. Has <laughs> that gone down now with where Toronto is? Or do you think it's still in the neighborhood of a three to five first rounder if they're moving OG Ananobi? I think, Jimmy, right now Toronto's the most complicated in terms of gathering <laughs> where agree. they are at. I'm not sure if they have clarity on that just yet. And I hope so. Because <laughs> we're, we're what? 35 hours from the draft? They better have some And they have clarity. two players that they're rumored to maybe trade in, Siakam or Ananobi. Exactly. Pascal Siakam down in Orlando training in the offseason. He's got a place down there. Um, I think it would be interesting to see them move him um, and or OG Ananobi. We saw Gary Trent Jr. opt in. By the way, that's one and I that was going to bring up sense. at some point. Does that is that a good measuring stick for the market is for Gary Trent Jr. to opt in instead of trying to... That tells Find us more money elsewhere. Yeah, that tells us between mostly with him and his agent, they recognize that's where they're at right now, and maybe he could get slightly more, but it's probably not the, worth the risk. Yeah, and that's that's a good good contract right there to finish it out. So get this, have one more good year, and as as I think is important to say, like we've seen with Bradley Beal more than anyone, get the money first, figure out the destination second, because it all almost always works out. And so um, in terms of trading the pick, I I think it's one of those where 
the Pacers are listening to everything. They're calling around. I heard as early as last Tuesday, just checking it. What what's the value? What what will it? What's the value of the seventh pick for? Because here's what they have to decide. It will be straight up. There's going to be additional pieces that are added in. Absolutely, at least several pieces that would have to be included. And what are you willing to give up? Here's the thing with that. What what their consideration must be is: Do you want to draft? And I think there's several wings that they would be very happy with. But are there ceiling or what you hope that person to be? Could you get that today? with a, a current wing that is out there. And that's what you're weighing because there's no sure things in the draft. There's so many whiff, whiffs and misses. And so if you could get some clarity and get a sure thing and a guy that's already had success and it wouldn't be too cost prohibitive, those are the things right now that the front office and, and especially I think Ted Wu, their, their cap guru over there, who, by the way, is a huge weapon for the Spacers franchise. He helped write the first CBA, the previous one. Sure. Now, on the negative side here, what's the NBA doing? We still don't have, teams still don't have the new CBA that takes effect July 1. So that is complicated. But if you're the Pacers, you hope by having Ted Wu, someone as a direct source to the NBA, again, he was part that wrote that last CBA, would know how to maximize it because that's why you hire someone like that. But there's so many different ways that the Pacers could go about this pick. I still think... I would be willing to trade it, but not for something like four first-round picks, five first-round picks. I wouldn't. I don't. I don't think it's too much. I think it's too cost-prohibitive as well to move up to go get Scoot, for example, to go get a Brandon Miller. And and what I'm saying by that is, it would. I think it would take your three first-round picks this year, and probably at least one player that's already on their roster: Chris Duarte and Isaiah Jackson. A buddy, something like that. So th- this is where it gets diff- difficult, Eddie. We saw at the trade deadline, mm-hmm. guys were getting moved for five second-round picks. And we saw last year at this time, Rudy Gobert went for the, as the five, five first-round picks plus their last pick. So really six. Like, it was incredible, the haul. And so in turn, maybe you call this inflation in the NBA. And so in turn, it's making these trades very difficult for teams to maneuver. That's what I was about to bring up is the – is the trade last year with Rudy Gobert for the five first-round picks. It's like, okay, OG Ananobi's more valuable in my eyes than Rudy Gobert because not only can he bring the defense like one through four because of his ability to switch and pick and roll and everything, but he's improved as a shooter and an offensive weapon. So to me, it's a bit interesting of the case that you're in if you're a team trying to acquire OG Ananobi just because of the flexibility he has on both sides of the floor. Because uh, I think he'd be a perfect fit in Indiana, but at what price is the big question and four first round picks is way too much for my liking i'd rather try and go sign you know uh cam johnson or maybe even try to you know go to atlanta get deandre hunter because i know he probably is available for them so it's a bit interesting uh what the pacers can do right now as like as kevin putcher likes to say optionality (laughs) i would i would gladly give up seven 26 and 29 and a first next year if it meant one of two things were happening, that's four first rounders on the table. Mm-hmm. If it meant that a player of OG Ananobi's caliber was coming here, or if it meant you could move up to two or three. And here's why because even though there's only two rounds to draft with in the NBA, we all know that, and the picks are a hot commodity, where I would like the Pacers to be next year is a 15 to 18 range that's a player that is not the necessary future of the franchise would be a contributing piece that you want to grow and develop. If they have the utmost confidence in Scoot Henderson or in Brandon Miller, if that was an actual conversation, 
and it's four first rounders, but three of them are here this year, and we're already talking about using 26 or 29 to trade up to 13. Yeah. I'm okay with it. And I, I like how you did that. Once you make it real, rather than just four picks, when you think about it, so 26 and 29, in the grand scheme of things, not that important, not that valuable, right? How many times do we kind of laugh at a throwaway pick yeah. at 20? Let's see, maybe this person, this player can hit the rotation and become a seventh man. That's kind of what you're hoping at minimum for a pick 2023. 20, so you're not too as much worried about 26, 29. And then you would assume, like we did, next year's first would probably be 17 to 20. Again, it's not that lottery pick. You would have a lottery protection. I think if you talk about those four, I think it would take <laughs> even more than that. Yeah. And more so you're talking about a known player, a, a guy already on the roster that fits within. And depending on the opposing team, Portland – if they're making a deal and trading away their pick, right. they don't want those draft picks. So you're not even talking about a package like this. Meantime, if it's Charlotte, and if you're Charlotte, I I don't know why you wouldn't do the. You're either keeping the pick or you're getting Zion, a high sure. franchise altering guy if he's healthy. Versus, hey, let's run through this draft once again. I will say one caveat as we go to break. We're going to have Danny Lopez, Vice President of External Affairs and Corporate Communications with your Indiana Pacers. Big announcement for them, the all-star front. The only way that Portland deal would make sense is if there's a subsequent deal to move Dame, and it's clear there's a rebuild there where they would want picks in that case because they're doing a full overhaul of the roster. He's Scott Agnes. I'm Jimmy Cook. Eddie Garrison with us as well. Daniel Lopez, Vice President for External Affairs, Corporate Communications. Big news on the Pacers front. All-star Saturday. New venue. More fan-friendly. We'll talk about that when we come back on The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's 12.30 on this Wednesday. Welcome in. This is the Fan Midday Show on 93.5-1075. With Jimmy Cook, I'm Scott Agnes, and let's go right to the hotline. As now we're joined with Danny Lopez. Vice President for External Relations and Corporate Communications for Pacers Sports and Entertainment. And Danny, an exciting announcement earlier today. We were over at Lucas Oil Stadium with the Pacers and the All-Star Host Committee for February announcing that Lucas Oil Stadium will be the host for All-Star Saturday night. That's the three-point contest, the dunk contest, and the, the skills challenge. Take us through what went into that and, and why fans are going to be excited about the fact that even more of them can be involved next February. Yeah, you nailed it. What's up, Scott? First and foremost, let me tell you that I think you're doing a great job on this on this show, man. You, you're, you're killing it, so good work, uh, and thanks for having me on to talk about this. This is really exciting. We, uh, you know, we had this great announcement. I think you saw the turnout. You were out there, so you saw the turnout. You see how everybody is excited about this. I mean, the reality is that, you know, if you think about, you know, you were out in Utah and you saw, and it's just, it's just not the same when you're in a building like that and, you know, the cheapest ticket in the building is $500 or whatever. It's just not the same. We are focused on making All-Star Indy the most community-focused uh, event that, that we have, the most community-centric All-Star that we can make it. And, uh, and this was a big part of it. So when we started having communications with the league about it, I think – you know, there are a lot. There's a there's so much that goes into the planning of this, the logistics of the of the big shows that are put on over the course of that weekend, and so there was a lot that went into that decision. But ultimately, we've got great partners, the NBA. They share our vision, uh, and so everybody got on board, and here we are. And so the All-Star Game, the big one, will be over at Gamebridge Fieldhouse as expected. But with this and opening up Lucas Oil Stadium, the South 
end of the stadium. Uh, there will be now up 35,000 fans that will be able to attend it and to your point too, at an affordable rate. Tickets go on sale yeah. July 24th, ranging from 24 to 49 $79. So you're exactly right. Hopefully it not only doesn't just have a corporate feel, but I know one of the big things for Rick Fusen and everyone over there, one of the hesitations in even hosting it was we want to make it ours. We want to involve as many season ticket holders and residents as we can and Having it at the field house really makes that a difficult situation. So opening up Lucas Oil really changes that opportunity. We, we do these things our way. I yeah. mean, that's the reality. We've got a unique way to do it. We want to make it distinct. we got to leave our imprint on it. This isn't a city that can or does just drop these events in here and then they come and go and that's the end of it. We, we try to do these things in a very particular way with a lot of involvement. And so when we started thinking about $24 tickets and $49 tickets, $79 tickets, I mean, that's unprecedented. The, 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 this has not been done for All-Star in the past. And, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head as it, as it, you know, as it pertains to this event in particular. All, if you grew up like I did in the early 80s into the 90s, this was the event. I mean, it was, it was Neek and Jordan. It was Spud Webb. It was Larry Bird. It was the three-point contest. I mean, this was... This was what so many people sort of uh, associate with All-Star, and it's the memories that a lot of people have of All-Star as a kid. Uh, I certainly do, and I think I think a lot of people share that. And so to be able to do that uh, with so many more members of our community that can now access it and be a part of it uh, live in person is going to be just awesome. Danny, this has been a six- to seven-year process if you go back to when you guys were initially making a bid to be All-Star host to when it was announced as a site back in 2017. The schedule changes to the COVID-19 pandemic, and now here we are with a date in 2024. How early in the process or how recently in this process did Lucas Oil Stadium become a viable option to have this event? Because I think it's really great what you guys are doing. You mentioned what this weekend means to a lot of NBA fans. I have those same memories growing up as a kid and remembering great dunk contests and three-point shootouts. It's awesome that it'll be more accessible, but when did Lucas Oil Stadium become on your radar? Well, like I, I mean, like I said, there's just a ton that goes into it, even coordinating with the CIB and with the folks at, at Lucas Oil and the city and the state to make sure that you can get in there and make this happen in that in that facility and that it's open and available. I mean, there's a ton that goes into that. And obviously, as you all know, um, the NBA's got we, – we have an just an incredible uh, uh, partnership with the NBA that's unique with her being the, lo- the longest standing, longest tenured owner. It's just a different relationship with, with the commissioner and with the team. Um, so it is a partnership, and we're constantly having those conversations. But as you guys know, they don't really pivot their focus entirely until after the previous All-Star, and that's when we were on the clock. So, I, I, you know, I'd say around that time we started having serious conversations around, okay, well, what, what would this look like if we were to be able to pull this thing off? And what does that require on the league side? What does that require on our side? What would that mean for the community? Can we do things like what we're going to do, the host committee purchasing 2,400 tickets and then using our community partners to distribute them to families that otherwise would never come to Lucas Oil for an event like this? Uh, those types of things we started having conversations as a team. So I'd say, you know, fairly recently we were able to, to really get serious and, and buckle down and start having these conversations. Danny Lopez, Pacer Sports and Entertainment, Corporate Communications VP, joining us to talk about All-Star Weekend, already thinking about February and how Indy will put on a show here. And I know there's things that haven't been announced yet. They're still figuring it out. But I think the thing I want to impress upon fans here is there's concerts. It's a mega weekend um, between the concerts, um, different venues that are being involved. And then finally Sunday, it all being showcased with – 
the All-Star Game, which will be yep. seen in, what, like 214 countries and territories, I think it is. So this is a, yep. a, a very different way in which Indy will be in the spotlight to a global audience. You know, the, the, you're exactly right. The, this is the most uh, international event that we're going to host here of this scale uh, in Indianapolis. It's it's far more global in scale than the, than the Super Bowl and, and then college football, which are, were great events. But this is different in the sense that, you know, last year at, in Utah, you had uh, 25 players from 17 countries that participated in the All-Star festivities over the course of that weekend. You're going to have something similar this, this year. You get 1,800 members of the media. A lot of them come from other places, other countries that will descend on Indianapolis. The basketball, the way we're looking at it is, you know, the basketball grew up here. The basketball stories are going to largely take care of themselves. We want to make sure that we use this as an opportunity to position Indiana as a tech leader, as a logistics leader in the Midwest, uh, you know, the, the number one school of music in the world, the number one school of engineering in the world, Notre Dame. I mean, our, re- our research universities, our research institutions that are here, this is a big global business hub and and our culinary scene is important our retail and music scene is important we want to show those things off to the world and so this is our chance to do that we're going to be you know front and center for that weekend and we got to make sure that we we put our best foot forward and and we're working collaborative collaboratively with the city and the state and all the organizations around town to, to do exactly that Danny, I love when the All-Star events happen, and Scott mentioned the concerts, but there's ways that the city is highlighted and the culture of the city are highlighted. Heck, Larry Bird delivered the bid in an Indy car, so, so you already have yeah, one foot in the, in the door in that regard. Yeah. I know you're yeah, going to keep no most close to the chest, but any other wrinkles or nuggets or ways that the, the culture of the city will be on display throughout the weekend? Yeah, so there's gonna, there will be concerts, and and actually part of the announcement today was the as you as you saw the the game itself or the festivity the basketball side festivities will be on the south end, and then the north end will be used as you see from the renderings uh, by uh, by the NBA and by organizers in, in, in different ways. We'll have some performances, and there's more more announcements to come on that. Um, but even just downtown, and the beauty of our walkable downtown is you'll be able to get to Cambridge, or you'll be able to get uh, into the heart of downtown and the campus uh, easily from Lucas Oil or from any of the venues. But we'll have pop-up retail. There'll be artists on display. Um, you know, we're, we're working with all of the the, uh, the leasing agents and the building owners around town to make sure that if there's an empty uh, storefront, that we're using that space to get you know an artist in there and use it as a gallery or get a music some some kind of music performance thing in there, so that all those spaces are on display, truly on display for anybody that's walking our downtown. Um, Tons more. Look, we got a long way to go. Right, we got months and months before uh, we get to February, and there's going to be a ton of announcements. But the one thing I do want to impress upon everybody is, you know, few people actually get into the game on Sunday, and obviously we've expanded the universe to 35,000 of folks that, that can ultimately get in uh, to watch watch this game uh, or these festivities on Saturday night now, but. Even if you're not coming to one of these events, there's going to be a fan fest like there is every year, um, and there's going to be other things. I mean, we want, we want people to just descend upon downtown and walk it and be around and feel the energy and bring that to Indianapolis because, because uh, like we've talked about, this is our chance to really put the city and the state on display for the rest of the world. I'm talking with Danny Lopez, Pacer Sports Entertainment, and really the host committee as well for this All Star Game. One of the blessings in disguise is the fact that. 
those $360 million in renovations to the Fieldhouse would not have been done um, if yep. Indy had hosted uh, like they were planning to three years ago. And so that's a whole other element in all this. You talk about mm-hmm. the walkability of the city, but I'm picturing not tailgating, but people hanging outside the North End. There's that speakeasy, Mel's Steakhouse. Like There's so much within this, let's call it a mile radius, that that's going to be fantastic. And the one other thing we haven't touched on that's noteworthy too is throughout those four days, the 15th of the 18th of February, Pacers bike share free, Indigo buses free. So if, if let's say bad weather or you're just outside that mile block, it's going to be an easy way to come down and have, have a good few days. It's going to be easy to get into downtown. It's going to be easy to get around downtown by bus or by foot. Um, We want to make this as easy as possible for people to come down and enjoy the festivities. You're exactly right. You know, if there was a silver silver lining with with the way things played out, it's that we got to finish the field house of the future. Uh, And when you're doing the second largest renovation project in the history of the league, you know, you need need those times. We would have been right in the middle of the renovations uh, for All-Star 2021. Uh, and the other silver lining, I know you know Rick has talked about this a lot. The other silver lining is that we weren't going to be able to do this event the way we do events. I mean, we, the creative things like this just would not have been possible. We wouldn't have been able to involve you know up to 400 members of a host committee to to think creatively about ways that we could put the city and the state on display. And so the advantage to having a little more time and and sort of things stabilizing and normalizing is that we could get back to work in the way that we always do. And we're doing exactly that. And you know you you, ref, you referenced Commission Row, Bicentennial Unity Plaza, which will which, which we'll cut ribbon on here uh, very soon in the coming months. So, I mean, there's a lot that wasn't in place at the time that we'll be able to leverage. And all of that means greater connectivity to the neighborhoods around downtown and hopefully people from all over the state coming down downtown for the events. So let's dive brass tacks for a second. July 24th is the date that folks need to know at this point, right? 10,500 tickets will go on sale to the public around then? That's right. And, and we want to encourage folks to go to Pacers.com slash All-Star 2024 um, because all of the information leading up to the on sale will be on there and you'll there'll be instructions on the process and everything else. Um, so, you know, it's, it, we, we want to make this sale available to, to Hoosiers first. So we want to encourage people to get on there and and figure out what that process is going to be. But uh, but that's all of the information for All-Star will be on there, too. So if, if people want to know how to get involved or what some of the events that are going to be that have already been announced, all of that is on that site, too. Very good, Danny. Thanks for joining us, and uh, well done this afternoon at that press conference. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. That's Danny Lopez, Vice President of External Relations and Corporate Communications over at Pacer Sports and Entertainment. And it was pretty cool. They had a blow-up. Like, remember like the Colts like blow-up stick figure? Yeah. Well, this was like a blow-up block of the NBA logo which is sweet, right outside, kind of nearby the Peyton Manning statue for those who have driven by or go to Colts games or whatever. And and you know it was a big deal because the fact that Steve Simon, one of the Pacers' owners, son of Herb Simon, was there. Rick Fusen, the mayor, the governor. Um, this is significant both to the economy and, and for us. Let's just take it selfishly, to the sports world. Like, we may not have another All-Star weekend in in our lifetimes. I thought for sure yeah. by now, Jimmy and Eddie, we would already have another Super Bowl we're still waiting. I've been wanting All-Star Saturday night here my entire life. Like I, I, will, I will be a part of that event in some capacity. Like I, I just I can't wait to, to get a ticket. Again, July 24th is, is when those are going to go on sale because even though the All-Star game sometimes gets poo-pooed, <laughs> I will say like the, the effort intensity the last couple of years I thought has been better than years past. But again, I know where the bar was and I know that it's not for everybody. 
But All-Star Saturday night is always electric. I remember just getting together with buddies, watching mm-hmm. on TV, high school and college years, and to be able to be there in person, but not only be there in person, have it in our own backyard is phenomenal. The idea of putting it in Lucas Oil Stadium and having it more accessible to everybody equally is cool. And now it's a countdown to those little nuggets that'll be passed out on how the city's going to be represented, what type of unique aspects are going to be there. A lot's already in there on Pacers.com in the press release. And Fieldhouse Files. And Fieldhouse Files. Come on now. Of course. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot, a lot of first-hand accounts from our own Scott Agnes. But yeah, I mean, this is... It's, it's For us, it's been a lifetime. And for Pacers fans, it's been a lifetime to some extent if you're in our gap of, of age. But for this organization, it's been six years trying to get this thing finalized with the COVID-19 pandemic complicating things, with hosting March Madness in 2021, which again was phenomenal and it was a great opportunity for the city. But yeah, to bump that back, it did act as a blessing in some regard to open up a lot of amenities you highlighted that wouldn't have been there, like like the plaza that's currently under Mm -hmm. works right now. And there's some context here as well. The new attendance number at Gamebridge Fieldhouse is like 17,000. Remember, they, they cut out an in, one of the ends for performances. TNT has a big old set. There's thousands. I forget the official number. There's thousands of media there. Mm-hmm. So let's rough it. So let's go from 17,000 to maybe 14,000 sold seats for the All-Star game. And that would be Saturday night and Friday if that's where it was held. Instead, it's more than doubling that attendance. And, and so the real allure of this is the fact that locals – can actually be involved in this because otherwise quite honestly jimmy they're shut out they have yeah. no chance i've had season ticket holders already hit me up trying to like how do i get tickets quite honestly if i wanted to buy tickets i'm not sure how i would get like right. that's how scarce these tickets are and then on top of that being at an affordable rate now from an event standpoint i'll be curious to see two things first and talking about saturday night three-point shootout was more way more impressive and eye-popping than the dunk contest the dunk contest has traditionally own that night. Yeah. And then secondly, once you talk about being at the Fieldhouse Sunday for the All-Star game, what will it look like, both in terms of effort and format? Because already, I think it was a couple weeks ago, Adam Silver hinting at the fact that maybe they'll shake it up a little bit. And instead of that draft that we all wanted to see, and I thought it went okay, but it was also funny, the fact yeah. that your MVP, Nikola Jokic, I think was drafted second to last. <laughs> Now, there's reasons behind that, especially those foreign players. Luca, more than anyone, just watch his body language. He does not want to be there. Has zero interest. A guy like Jimmy Butler, I don't think, has any interest in being there. But one thing they're considering here is making it, once you have your players involved in the game, then splitting it up because you have enough now, world versus U.S. And that, too, would be interesting. Joel Embiid, Giannis. Jokic, etc., on one team, and LeBron, Steph, and others uh, on representing the U.S. team. That's they're they're trying to find a magic spark. It starts with the guys caring more and putting up a little bit of a fight defensively. Yeah, I mean it's at this point though you've tried to incentivize it. You you involve charities, you involved uh, bonuses, you involved as much as you can. I don't hate the idea of changing it to a U.S. versus world format if that's the way they wanted to go, but. There's also a time and a place where at some point the defense is never coming back to the level they want it to for the entire stretch of a game. It gets locked and tight in the fourth quarter with the Elam ending in there, but at some point you know what you're buying into. I'm not mad at an offensive slugfest. I know some NBA purists want to see the lockdown defense, but I 
I've accepted it, and it still can be exciting and fun. <laughs> Here's my thing. I just want to see him put up a fight. Sure. I'm not trying to see lockdown defense or right. anything like that. Right. But to stand at the elbow. There's a balance. And watch the guy blow past you sure. and then run to the other end. That's not basketball. That's not what we accept yeah. here in Indiana. Sure. No, thank you. But uh, that will be a good time coming up on Saturday. So I appreciate Danny Lopez joining us to talk about that again. If you want to read more, already posted a story at fieldhousefiles.com. Let's take a break. Come back. More draft discussion. It's going to be a lot of that here leading up to the draft tomorrow night. Eh, probably it'll be like 8.30 p.m. by the time Victor Wimbanyama shakes the hand of Adam Silver <laughs> to get things started. And then that's truly when things get started. Let's talk about what might happen after Victor and a lot more after this as you're listening to the Fan Midday Show on 93.5, 107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. The NBA draft tomorrow night at Barclays Center in Brooklyn. I went last year, Jimmy. It was a fun experience, something I was glad I really did once. The challenge is so much of that world is on our phones and on Twitter and not the TV product or there in the venue that part of me did feel a little bit disconnected from that experience. What made it valuable, though, I will say, is afterward going down to event level Seeing Benedict Mather and getting to see him and talk with him, Kendall Brown, Andrew Nimhart, I don't think was there if I remember right. And um, but it was it's a cool experience and it's honestly I was thinking about this last night. If I'm Trace Jackson Davis, where you're a fringe first round guy, early second round guy, so you know you're going to be drafted. Is my point? Yeah. I'd have a hard time not going. You're never going to go again where you are actively involved. The thing is, I will say there is a lot to value where you could be with your friends and family. You can be either, you know, in a good environment or here in Indianapolis with those that matter versus, you know, five people. I think now those in the green room are allowed to bring 10 people to the draft. I see it both ways. I think I would lean quite honestly of being there and experience it my one time. Yeah, I would, I would probably go because with the allotment of people you're allowed to bring, you, you could bring those closest to you in theory, or your parents, or maybe brothers and sisters, mm-hmm. perhaps some you know good friends. Like either way, you're able to bring enough of your close knit group where you still have that experience, and then you know there's watch parties going on in general back home. So it is a once in a lifetime experience. But if if I felt like it wasn't going to happen within the first round, like if I felt like I was truly fringe where it's be the second, I don't know. I might I might take the step back. I want the Adam Silver <laughs> I want the yeah. Adam Silver handshake, right? Like that's I don't know. But it would be different for me if I was truly in a boat where I might not be taken till the second round. The the only reason you don't want to go in my opinion, um is if you're not sure where you're gonna fall yeah. and there's a chance for that slide and you're expected to go high. So if you're expected, it's not going to happen. But Jarris Walker, you know, we think could be at seven. Well, if he slides to 15 and then 18 and then 22. The Will Levis effect is you they're commonly do calling not it nowadays. Want that. Yeah. Or wasn't Aaron Rodgers was, as well? Yes, like there's there's almost always yep. one individual that is just sliding. Sure. That's where it gets embarrassed. If you're Trace and you're going to go, in my opinion, 24 to 40, decent range, could be a first round and you surprised everybody. 
or maybe you go into a better situation and are taken early second round. That is the good thing with the NBA draft. There's a number of different reasons. Positions alone is why it happens this way. But only two rounds, only one day. You don't have to have that same type of stress factor of, oh, I might not get taken until tomorrow or Friday or Saturday. Yeah. At least you're guaranteed to get taken that night, assuming you have confidence that you're going to get taken. A lot of players in play for the Pacers at seven. First, what will be most interesting, what does Charlotte do it to? Portland at three. We'll break it all down and a lot more with someone who studies the draft year-round, Raphael Barlow, NBABigBoard.com. He'll join us to discuss and preview the draft leading up to tomorrow night right here on the Fan Midday Show. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. 1 p.m. on this Wednesday, Thursday night, all attention will be inside the Barclays Center for the NBA Draft. Pacers with five picks starting at number seven, not expecting for them to use all of those. But a lot of intrigue in this draft, and let's break it all down here on the Fan Midday Shows. We're welcomed in on the hotline with Raphael Barlow of NBABigBoard.com. Raphael, I'm sure you're going through the line, talking with a lot of people leading up to the draft, a lot of different radio shows as well. Is the most intrigue right there at two and three of whether or not Charlotte stays or completes a deal and the same thing with Portland? Yeah, I'm, I'm here at the, the hotel where all the action and everybody's at, and, and nobody seems to know what is what is going on and as far as is there going to be a lot of action or, or, or moving. I mean, it sounds like Brandon Miller to, to Charlotte is a lock, but right now everybody's just trying to figure out what happens with Portland. Yeah, that's interesting. I've I've heard it's they're completely torn, Charlotte, on Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller. And Scoot, I think, talk about these two players. I think Scoot, we kind of know that he's going to be a success. It's just how big. Where I think there's a lot more questions with Brandon, both on and off the court. How do you see those two? I actually think it's a little bit of the opposite. Um, just the people that I've spoken to feel like. With, with Miller, it's an easier fit as far as plug-and-play with any system. And with Scoot, he's someone that, you know, you kind of have to build around him or you have to give him the keys to to the franchise for him to be successful. So from everything that I've been hearing, people feel like Brandon is the guy that can fit if you already have, like, a star point guard because he can play a complementary role because of the size and the shooting and defend multiple positions. But I've also heard that there are some, some teams that think that Scoot could possibly fall down to number four, which is kind of shocking, but I just heard that probably about an hour or so ago. Raphael, with all the rumblings around Damian Lillard and whether or not he really wants to still be a part of Portland and a potential rebuild for them, is it a clear indication that it is rebuild or development mode, whatever word you want to use, by the Portland Trailblazers if they keep the third pick and take Scoot Henderson? Oh, man. Or take whoever. I, I want, it doesn't have to be scoop. You know what I mean. They use yeah. the pick. They don't trade it. Yeah, I mean, I think they're definitely going to try to move it and, and try to get some help right away. But I wonder if teams already know that they're desperate to move it. Are they going to give them, like, their, their best package? From what I've been told, that the Sacramento – I'm sorry, not Sacramento, but Siakam, the, the Toronto, that, that is probably, like, the best deal. But I think Shaden Sharp is the hold up there. 
Talking with Rafael Barlow, he's in New York City leading up to the draft tomorrow night. How about the Pacers? It gets real interesting there at seven. I think there's three or four players that they'd be very comfortable with. Um, needing wings, needing defenders, needing rebounding. Who are a couple players you would spotlight for them at number seven? Yeah, I think their range could be from Cam Whitmore to Jarrett Walker, Taylor Hendricks. But I've also heard that uh, Bilal um, Koulibaly could also be in that mix. Raphael, for Taylor Hendricks, I've started to warm on the idea of what he brings to the table with his versatility and, and just his ability to not only have the pull-up within his arsenal but be solid as on-ball defense. When you're evaluating a prospect like Hendricks, who's had a real rise right out of the gate from just one year's time compared to where things were entering his freshman season, is it a flash in the pan or is it, wow, this guy's really had a strong year and has the foundation of building something special in this league? No, I don't think it's a flash in the pan. I think the only reason why people may think it is that because he wasn't like super highly touted coming out of high school. He didn't have the same buzz as like a Jarrett Walker or a Cam Whitmore so he was outside of the top 50 recruits in the nation so for some people it's, it's kind of like he kind of came out of nowhere but I mean the kid shot 39% from three and averaged over blocking a game and and is a defender so I think he is someone that a lot of teams like because he's a plug and play guy you can plug him in in any system you can knock down shots and defend so um, I think he's going to be really good Two of the more intriguing players are, of course, the Thompson twins. Asar was originally scheduled to come here to Indianapolis for a workout, then that ultimately was canceled. Where do you stand on those two? Who who do you think could have the higher upside? We we know Amen more of kind of the point guard ball handling, and Asar a little bit more out on the wing, and and was was MVP the last couple of years down at Overtime Elite. Yeah, you know what's interesting is that even though Amin is considered the the better of the two as far as the two-time MVP, Great. and if you look at their assist numbers, I think it's like 6.2 for Amin and 6.1 for Asar. The assist-to-turnover ratio is, is very similar. I honestly think that Asar is a point guard. He just didn't necessarily play as the primary because he was with his brother, but I think if he's on another team anywhere else, he is the primary ball handler. So I think that, I mean, they, they both could end up, you know, having very similar careers. Amin is just probably the better athlete. But, I mean, he's probably arguably like the, it'll be a top five athlete in the NBA next year. So I don't see much of a difference between those two. Rafael Barlow with us. You can follow him on Twitter at Barlow500, head of NBA draft content over at NBABigBoard.com, director of scouting there as well. Speaking of Jairus Walker, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the conversation, but diving into what he brings to the table, the main knock on him is can he do it consistently from beyond the arc at the NBA level? From your evaluation, what the tape's shown about him, is it an issue of consistency or is it an issue of more mechanics-based that, that could be fixed or mended in the right system? Yeah, I mean, you know, these guys are young, so they're far from being a finished product. Jarrett Walker was actually a pretty good shooter off off the catch. Um, the concern is that, you know, maybe the free throw percentage indicates that, that he's a little bit further away. But if you just look at, at his overall numbers off the catch, I want to say he was he was shot like 30-something percent from three off the catch. I think he's going to be 
going to be fine. Um, yeah, 41% on unguarded catch-and-shoot jumpers. And those aren't usually numbers you, you hear about a guy that they're shooting concerns. So I just think that, you know, a year or two to get adjusted to the line, I think he's going to be fine as a shooter. Rafael Barlow with us. I want to talk about kind of some guys in play at the back end of the first round, Rafael, because Pacers, at least right now, having a couple of picks there, 26 and 29. Uh, some names that I like, Andre Jackson, Colby Jones, uh, a, a guy that's really surged seeming like um, is Omax from Marquette. Uh, Prosper, he was here, uh, I think it was a couple weeks ago for yep. interviews as well. And then I'll throw City Sissoko in there as well with G League Ignite. Uh, among those guys, or if you have one other guy that stands out to you, uh, who who among that group really piques your interest? Yeah, you know what? I don't think Omax, uh, Maximus Prosper, will be available. I actually heard that he, um, they, I guess the Patriots have a ring the bell drill where you have to yeah. make 20 out of 25, or maybe it's 23. Either way, it's like you got to make 80% of, of your threes. And I heard that he was one of the few, if not the only prospect that was able to ring the bell in their, in their drill. So I think he's someone that the Pacers would love, but I think they're going to have to move up to get him. And. Another name that I've been hearing is maybe Julian Phillips mm-hmm. from Tennessee. Was highly touted coming into his freshman year. Didn't have like the best year efficient as far as efficiency, but he's a really good defender and he can provide some some wing depth for the Pacers. So that's a name. Um, City Sissoko would be good. I mean, he's a, a guy that is more so of a natural point guard and ball handler, but playing with Scoot, he didn't really get the opportunity. And he was one of the better the better players in the G League in the second half of the season. I think he finished second in the G League in dunk for wings, which is tremendous growth for him because he used to be a little a little passive as far as attacking. So I, I like him there. Um, what was the other name that you mentioned? Uh, Colby Jones from Xavier, Ben Shepard from Belmont. You could throw in Gigi Jackson, Max Lewis. Yep. All those guys have been here for workouts. Yeah, Kobe Jones is the one that I think you could probably get at 32. Ben Shepard is, is a guy that I think would be in, in the first-round range. And then Gigi is – I honestly think that Gigi is a top-10 talent in this draft. He's just so young. Started off the season at 17. He's only 18 years old now. I mean, he's only eligible to be in this draft by like 14 days. So I think he would be a good long-term developmental prospect. But I'll say this, if he stayed in his original class, which was um, 2024 draft, I think he would be the number one pick. So if Indiana gets him at, you know, somewhere late in the first round with one of their picks, and I think a developmental year, and you end up with a guy that would be a top five pick in 2024. So I would totally pull the trigger on that if, um, if he's available. Yeah, he was very honest with us about the mistakes he made and the direction he needs to go and improve upon more so even off the court youngest guy in the class as you reference I am curious why he didn't you know push it back another year because by all indications next draft not that exciting in terms of top prospects so in terms of where he could go now it seems like I could see him falling into the late first round and somebody's going to pull the trigger there and get him on a good rookie deal yeah yeah definitely yeah I think like he I guess when your mind is already set on being a one-and-done, then it's hard to go back. But, I mean, he's a good kid. I've had a chance to be around him a few times this summer. I live in Dallas. He did a lot of his training in Dallas. Good kid, just 
is young, 18 years old, and hasn't really been away from home. And I think that's the concern of the teams is, you know, adding an 18-year-old to – and most teams are already young as is, but adding an 18-year-old that has never been away from home with millions of dollars in his pocket, I think that's probably the biggest concern for teams. Raphael, when we talked to you before the NBA Draft Combine, we were discussing whether or not the value of those back-end first-rounders the Pacers have in 26 and 29 would be able to carry the day to get back into the middle of the first round. Let's say they keep seven and they make a selection there. As you've gone through this further evaluation process and with us inside of 32 hours from draft night, is there enough value at the back of the draft, proceed value by teams, for if the Pacers wanted to package 26 and 29, they could get up to a, a 15 to 20 range? Yeah, I think so. You may have to throw in a player, a player in that mix, but I, I do think that there are some teams that may want to move back because it could be a guy that they like that they think could be available you know, in the back end of, of the first round and they may be able to pick up an asset in return for it. I just can't see a situation where the Pacers bring in, what, four? They have four picks, four or five. I know they have four of the first 32. I just can't see a situation where they bring in all of those guys. I think they'll consolidate, and uh, I think that they can move up. Yeah, I think that's the word, Raphael. Raphael Barlow joining us here of NBABigBoard.com. Consolidate. Five picks, including 55, which doesn't generally have a ton of value there. And right now, unless they make any moves, they only have three open roster spots. Plus, you could do yeah. another G League or two. Uh, or, excuse me, a two-way contract um, as well. How about a couple local prospects? I'm um, talking about Jalen hood Shafino of IU, as well as Trace Jackson Davis, who may work his way into the late first round. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Trace Jackson Davis is a guy that teams are just overthinking. Just off of numbers alone, I think outside of Wimbayama, he's the most productive prospect in this class on paper. And just like I said, I think teams are overthinking it. No, he doesn't shoot the ball or space the floor like you would like, but he finishes around the rim and is a very, very, very underrated passer and a good rebounder. So I think a playoff team that will need some depth in the front court should definitely take a flyer on him in the first round. And then Hood Shafino, I think he has a pretty wide range. I think he can go anywhere from 13 through through 20. So, um, you know, he could end up being in the back end of the lottery, but I don't see him getting past 20. Looking at two players that have made a name for themselves in the last couple of NCAA tournaments, looking at guys like Jaime Jaquez and Isaiah Wong, this is clearly back end of the first round, early second round pieces. You'll throw Jalen Clark in there at the very back of the second round in terms of where he's been mocked. Talking about guys that have had that type of success in March Madness that might provide instant growth potentially within a roster. We thought that would happen with Chris Duarte. Hasn't happened here in Indiana. But when you look at guys like that, Jaime Jaquez, Isaiah Wong, name a few, what's your evaluation of them if they're selected in that range of values back into the first round, early second? Yeah, I think only Jaquez is probably in the first round range. Um, I, I think like Isaiah Wong is the guy. Honestly, I feel like if Isaiah Wong was born in a different era, he'd be a lottery pick. Just kind of <laughs> has a scores isolation type game, which is really not today's NBA unless you're like a really good passer. But I think he could be someone that you could target maybe at 55. But as far as like their, their success, I think you have to factor in that a little bit. I mean, they played on winning teams. They know how to contribute to winning. 
which is something that, you know, a lot of the, the younger prospects don't have. But I think Hawkins is the best of that of that group that could be a real target for the Pacers. Rafael, do you have a favorite player that, that you're tracking? Curious how high he may get drafted. Um, honestly, I, we talked about him a few seconds ago, but I'm just curious to see where Gigi goes. Yeah. Because, I, again, I think he's a top 10 talent as far as just his size and how he's able to handle the ball. And I think he has a really wide range. He's worked out for a lot of teams that have lottery picks, but he could also fall to the end of the, the, the first round. I just think if he goes to the right system with good development and veterans, I think in five years from now, we'll look back and say, man, why didn't he go higher? So Gigi's the guy that I'm probably tracking the most. Rafael, when you look at what Rick Carlisle is trying to build here, you look at the pieces they have in place, guys like Ben Matherin, Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner, if they stay at seven, is there a perfect fit piece in your mind? Obviously, we don't know what the team's going to do, but as you look at prospects that are in that range, is there a guy you feel like could mesh well with what they want to do, which is be a consistent offensive team, but also finally have that defense meet them in the middle and be a true I don't want to say contender, but a true threat on a night-in-night basis because of their defense. Yeah, I think Hendricks and Taylor Hendricks, that is, and Jess Walker provide the most defense as far as being available, uh, ready to, to come in and compete on the defensive end. And I don't know if he will be available. I mean, there are some rumors that he could be, but I like the Cam Whitmore fit. Now, he's also pretty young. Only only eighteen, but I think his, he has upside to to be one of the better the better players in this class, and I really think that he would be the better offensive player of the three guys that I mentioned. Rafael, appreciate the time. Get back to interviews and enjoy draft night tomorrow night. All right. Thank you so much. Anytime you want me on, let me know. We Thanks, appreciate Rafael. it. That's Rafael Barlow, NBA Bigboard.com. Always good to discuss the, this draft stuff ahead of time here, man. And, and there's so many names gotten comfortable with, familiar with. And I, I think more than anything, what makes this most interesting to Pacer fans here in Indiana, <laughs> Jimmy, is the fact that they have so many picks. And so to use the, the optionality, the bevy of options, uh, is what Ryan Carr, the VP of Player Personnel, was talking about with us a couple days ago. There's an array in which different uh, way in which they can attack this, and I don't think we'll get any true clarity really until tomorrow. That's when, if you do trade, whether it's to acquire a veteran or to, say, move up. We do have one piece of clarity, though, right? They, they've that? made it clear, and you've stressed it as well on Fieldhouse Files and when you've been here on the show, that they're not making five selections tomorrow night. I can't imagine. Like, so no. so, so that, that's at least one piece of clarity when, as right. a casual fan, you can get overwhelmed the idea of, oh, man, five picks, five rookies coming in. Well, in all likelihood, that's not what's going to happen. So it's not a question of... If they make a trade, it's when they make that trade. And how many. And how many are they made. And what's coming back. Is it seven? Is it a package of the second rounders? Does it involve the two first rounders they have at the back end? Are they looking for more? Are they looking to, like you mentioned, consolidate their assets to go up and get another rookie? Or are they looking to put together a package with picks to go get a ready starter right now that answers their needs at wing? That's the area we don't have the clarity on, but where we do have is that the one thing that would shock me of anything else that could happen to the Pacers tomorrow night is five selections, or all five selections are made with where they're at. Yeah, I would and completely agree with that. It's just a matter of, yeah, where they go with that seventh pick kind of starts things off. Mm-hmm. 
Here's where I would what I would do. I'd set the over under at two and a half. What do you like? Moves? Two and a half. No, I'm sorry. Two and a half draft picks. Oh, two and a half draft picks. I I think two's a given. Yeah. And three, very possible, because also taking the fact that 55, generally not that available, uh, or excuse me, not that valuable. And then secondly, they do have an additional two-way roster spot. All teams do, moving from two to three. So whether that's... You know, pick twenty nine or thirty, or no, they would get a guaranteed contract. But pick thirty two or fifty five, or maybe if you shuffle around that the deck a little bit in that second round, and you could maybe even trade up if there was a guy hanging around at forty five. I could see three very likely. I'd go over. Yeah, I'd, I'd go. I'd go over two and a half. I'd say three total selections made. Probably the more enticing line if we're if we're like looking at it from that angle was three and a half because. Like you mentioned, 55 is probably given to be selected. How many people are really going to be interested in that outside of feels like there's always one chance every year of a team that is strapped up by the cap and need to make a move of, hey, here's some cash considerations. We'd like to buy a draft pick. Like that's sure. sometimes happened. They did late that with Utah a couple of right. years ago. So yeah. maybe you see something like that. But unless they're doing what you know I would like them to do, which is packaging all these first rounders to either move up or to try to get a ready-now wing, you would be looking at, okay, how do you get to the 17th pick, for example? I'm just using L.A. as an example. Well, you give up 26-29. What else is given up there? Are you giving up a player? Are you giving up a second-round pick this year, second-rounder next year? Are you eating cap space with a team? Like, What are you doing to get up in the draft? And then how many picks are you left with? Yeah, I would say probably about three. And then by Friday, after we have the clarity on what they did draft night, then that will really help us inform what it looks like leading up to free agency on July 1 because they're still overloaded with bigs. We cannot go through another year, Jimmy, where, all right, it's Isaiah Jackson's night. Okay, now now Jalen Smith's the backup big tonight. Oh, what about Daniel Tice? You could move two of those guys. You probably should move at least one. And the same is maybe true for the backcourt as well, depending on what they draft. Um, you know, you got Chris Duarte, Buddy Heald. You could include Jordan Wara in that mix. I don't think they're really looking to, to move off of Aaron Neesmith, um, but he could be part of that group. A lot of different routes they could go. I think it's important for them not to rush things, not to get in a hurry here because of what Tyrese Halliburton led the team to last year. When we highlighted this last week after the Nuggets won the title, yeah, I get it. Like I, I've grown up in the generation, you've grown up in the generation, where as a society we want everything, instant gratification. The Nuggets had their stars, in theory, over a six or seven year window, but it took that amount of time with what they thought were centerpieces to eventually get over the hump. We talk about it from an angle of, yes, I'd love the Pacers to be in a spot where they are a four to six seed next year. We talked about the where you can find the, the action on Fieldhouse Files. I, I mentioned it yesterday on 107.5thefan.com. That is what this team is approaching this draft for, is not just to be a play-in team. They would like to be a legitimate playoff team, and they're not having to work any harder than a team one through six would have to do. And even if that doesn't happen next year, I'm not saying don't be a fan and don't enjoy it, but from the front office standpoint, don't get short-sighted of let's make it about just getting to the playoffs. Look at what Denver did and the time it took to do it. Let's be patient. And that's how the Pacers traditionally operate as a front office. They don't make moves based on emotion. They 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 let things play as they are, and then they attack. 
I've talked about it as well, Scott. At least in the Kevin Pritchard era, there have been these trades that are made that are out of the sky, never thought it was possible even in a trade machine. And, okay, we're ready to roll. Let, let's go out there. This is who we have. Yep. I, I look back to the, the Sabonis and Oladipo trade uh, when they acquired them moving Paul George. I look at how they got Tyrese Halliburton. That's almost the type of move I'm anticipating with the amount of draft capital they have. Whether or not that actually comes to fruition, I don't know. But Kevin Pritchard has been so crafty on trades that that's kind of what I'm expecting in terms of a return on your investment with whatever they end up doing on draft night. Yeah, I think it's been proven over this last decade. And what's wild is this will be his seventh draft leading. Talk about making me feel old again. <laughs> but uh, so he's crushed dra- uh, trades. I'm yeah. sorry. Drafts weren't great for the last decade until the last couple of years. And eh, here's some news from Woj. The Nuggets are trading a first-round pick next year and a 40th pick this year for 29 and 32. So there you go. So we have our answer. So there's there's two less picks. And so, see, my two-and-a-half number, two number You're looking is good sitting now. pretty. You're looking good with that and ticket. I, and here's why I like this. This is exactly one route I thought they should go is – Kick the can down the road for a future first-round pick. The trouble, though, assuming it's theirs, the Denver Nuggets, is what is their first-round pick going to be, right? 28, 29? Yeah. So so you know that's not going to be a good first-round pick. But one of the picks they traded was the 29 and the 32 pick. And maybe we should take a break, rehash what just went down, and I want to explain why a team like the Nuggets in this 32nd pick is very valuable to them, much more so than with the Pacers. This is the Fan Midday Show here on 107.5 and 93.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. According to Woj, the Pacers have made a move already leading up to the draft for tomorrow night, and that's getting some clarity on their picks. They were slated to have five tomorrow, and now they will have four. They're going to trade picks 29 and 32 this year, and will be getting the 40th pick this year along with Denver's first-round pick next year. So basically those 29 picks 29 basically wipe each other out, right? You're just doing it one year later. And then you're moving from 30, you're moving back from 32 to 40. So the first thought on all this is the move before the move. Couldn't have you <laughs> couldn't you have gotten more cuz you're helping them out. And you know the Denver picks not going to be any good next year if things go according to plan. I guess what I was expecting was a team that would not be, again, perhaps the best team next year. And so maybe you would be able to move up from 29 to 20. And the cost of doing so and playing ball with Denver would allow f- for you to move back a few spots in that second round. So look, all that about I'm excited for the you know sexy, flashy moves that Kevin Pritchard had been accustomed to make, and then no more than a minute goes by, and we have... The exact opposite of that in terms of it's not a sexy trade. It's just it's just a move and and it's it's fine. It achieves a need in terms of adding more to their cover moving forward. Kevin Bone has mentioned that in the past. In fact, I'm pretty sure he mentioned it today. Uh, 
on Kevin and Query a little bit earlier. Of course, you can catch that right here, 7 to 10 a.m. on The Fan. Look, I'm not... This is a, okay, they made a move, great type of reaction for me. But what is next? Because they're still in the same boat for this year's draft as they were two minutes ago, which is three roster spots available and four picks now. Because they had five, you offset one of them with the 40th pick coming in and 29 and 32 going out. You still have four picks within this year's draft. Granted, though, one of them is still pick 55. How much value does that really bring? But surely this is not it on the trade front for them, is at least my, what I'm telling myself reaction as this news hits the Twitter sphere. Sure. And, and let me complete the tease that that I did leading into the break sure. here. And that was regarding uh, this new exception. We have a collective bargaining agreement that's not quite done yet, but it, it'll it be ratified. It was ratified and will be taking effect come July 1. And because of this new exception, there's more value for these teams that are in the luxury tax for these second round picks because Moving forward with this new CBA, they'll be allowed to sign these second round picks to three and four year deals without having to either use cap space or their non tax mid level exception. So I, I know this is a lot of minutiae. It's a little deep in the weeds, but this is why I fully expected the Pacers to move pick 32. I thought it'd probably go to some team like the Warriors like the Lakers, a team that's really – Phoenix Suns, that's really deep in the luxury tax. I haven't, I'll have to look where the Nuggets are at because you talk about the success that they've had, Jimmy, and it's through the draft. Jokic, what, 2014. Murray, 2016. Big swing on Michael Porter Jr. two years later in 2018 um, as he fell back many spots because of health considerations. They rebuilt the team through the draft. Calvin Booth – took over a year ago as the general manager as Tim Connolly went up and I believe back home to Minnesota. Um, But they're looking to stock up on picks now, and I love this for a team like Denver. They want to maximize this window with Jokic as best they can. This is the second one of those deals that they've completed this month to get more picks right now. For the Pacer side of it, I just thought they could have gotten more. It's hard to really find the true Pacers side of it other than, again, adding assets for the future and you're down to four picks now instead of five. From Denver's side of it, it's fascinating because it's an immediate response to Bruce Brown's inevitable departure with where they are from a cap space standpoint and the idea of having to spend a ton of money when you're already paying, what, four, five players North of $30 million, something like that, in terms of the, the contract situation. They it's have unreal around. what Phoenix is doing. It, it, so I, I get it from a Denver standpoint of you look at what Christian Brown brought to the table in minutes during the finals, and you look at the ability to have contributors right away or within your defense of your crown with Bruce Brown's departure, and then you go back and look at who's within that range of pick 29, Trace Jackson Davis, Julian Phillips. We'd mentioned Jaime Jaquez. His name has floated around in range between 23 and 30. Who's going to be there remains to be seen, but it's a move that you make as a defending champion where you know a key asset, a valuable contributor in Bruce Brown is gone. As you mentioned, it's harder for teams that are against the cap or in that territory to acquire fresh blood. The best way to still do it is through the draft. 
I get it for Denver. I'm not necessarily mad about it from the Pacers' standpoint. It's just I envision them moving picks to either go up in the draft or moving picks to try to bring in a veteran of some kind, not obtain a pick next year. But again, I don't think I don't think they're done. I don't think this is the no, only trade that they make when you still have four selections with three roster spots. Even though one of them is 55. So I guess at the end of the day, you could make all four and at the 55th pick impresses you, okay, maybe he bumps who you took at 40 with the Denver selection you now get. So to reset, the Pacers now have a have pick 726, no longer 29 and 32. But also 40 and then 55. So four picks, one deal on the verges to being completed here. Not quite yet. Um, and probably another or two to come here. I ex- fully expect for Kevin Pritchard in this front office to have this type of activity. Pritchard talked about it to us at the draft lottery, saying he expected just for their bevy of picks, he expected 50 some calls to come in and check the status, check the value. Uh, because uh, the the number of picks the Pacers had, it was them and Charlotte with five. Now Charlotte's all alone with five picks, and the Pacers down to four. And at forty, I th- I th- here's what the Pacers thinking there is that the same range of player that they were going to get at thirty two will still be at 40. Remember when Raphael was on the show at 1 o'clock? I named about five, six players. There's probably four more I could have easily rattled off in that range. That's why. You're, you're, there's so many different guys right here that the Pacers will be able to claim at 40, assuming they still keep that pick because going back to what I referenced a few minutes ago at pick 40, those second-round picks are immensely valuable for teams that are into the luxury tax, paying that tax, and especially paying into the second apron coming up in the next CBA, like a Phoenix, as you referenced. But we know the Suns, they don't really care for the draft <laughs> at all. I mean, Kevin Ornovitz at ESPN.com wrote that story last year, basically how they don't care for the draft. And, well, that's that fact's been proven here is I'm not sure they control any one of their picks in the next decade. Where does this affect 2024 in terms of the range of options for them? Because the language is getting the least favorable selection. It is what ends up going with the Pacers with this pick. Where does that impact 2024 in your mind in terms of the range of outcomes you could have. Is it what we've discussed is that it's likely going to be in that 28 to 30 range in terms of wherever their season ends? Is that basically what we're looking at in the range of outcomes for them? In terms of what you expect those picks to be, I think you'd probably expect the Pacers' own pick, which they own, to be something like 16 to 21. And then this one, I think you'd figure to be one of the last picks in the first round. The reason I ask is because Bobby Marks highlights least favorable quote tweeted Adrian Wozniowski's tweet about the Nuggets trading the least favorable of the 2024 first round picks in the deal with the Pacers and he highlights the least favorable of OKC Clippers Utah if it's in the 11 to 30 range and Houston if it's in the 5 to 30 range is what is what Bobby Marks highlights there sure yeah yeah this is one of those the only thing I don't quite understand is dropping the Pacers playing ball with the Nuggets but losing some spots going from 32 to 40 this year. To me, the fir- that first-round pick's basically a swap, right? It's just pushing the can down the road a-, a year. Now, that said, the Pacers had been very high on this draft 
by all accounts, everyone thinks this draft's way better than the next couple. Um, so you would think you'd want to knock, you'd want to get it in now. Although again, you don't have those roster spots. You're going to have to pay Tyrese Halliburton, so there's an expense. Uh, Buddy Heald, if he's on your roster, he'll be doing a new contract. Miles Turner will be in a contract year, not this year, but the next. So the Pacers will be reaching a point here in a couple of years where they will have probably two max contract guys on their roster, and they have to figure out what they're working with. And so by doing this, you're spacing out the picks, spacing out the influx of of young talent, these 18-, 19-year-olds onto your roster. I still feel like there's something else coming. I just, I, oh, absolutely. I, I, and, 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 that, and that's what, it, again, we didn't get the initial just fist pump type move. Okay, things are rolling now because there's not really a clear benefit of doing a deal with Denver outside of, again, adding an asset next year that could be very low down the totem pole of draft order. And it's interesting that they would want that kind of flexibility knowing that expectations are not that the Pacers' own first-round pick would be a high lottery pick again next year. They want that to be something that is in that 18, 19, 20 and below range if they're really hitting the bar they want to next season. Yeah. So let me ask you this, Scott. With yes. fa- As a fallout of this move, would you expect their next move to involve like a Jalen Smith, an Isaiah Jackson, Chris Duarte, someone along those lines to A, move up in the draft or get a veteran wing to help Tyrese and Ben? Yeah, the first thing is depends what wings are actually available. If it's legit, and and so many of us want to talk about OG Ananobi, nobody knows for sure he's even available. That right. he's on the market. That Toronto's willing to deal him. I think more than anything, that's that's connecting dots. We saw a couple of years ago when the Pacers dealt. What was it? I think it was an a late first pick in Aaron Holiday to get the twentieth pick. I'm coming off the top of my head uh, and get Isaiah Jackson. I think it was like 30-31 to Washington. Yes. And then they got And uh, and Aaron Holiday. Yeah. yeah. And maybe a late second to go up and get Isaiah Jackson. So you could see some type of move like that where you're throwing pick 26 and a player to go up and get 17. I think that's very very possible. Um, Again, I like this draft class. I like how I'm not stuck on any one or two guys. I think you would be very content and happy with a handful of different guys at each positioning. Um, but yeah, there's no way the Pacers are, are done right now. They've had a they've had a lot of conversation with teams going back at least a week. And if anything, I'm kind of surprised that this was done early afternoon. Remember, in, in Mountain Time, it's not even the afternoon just yet. This allows for the deal to be finalized and for Denver, by the way, to then have clarity on where it's going to be drafted. Here's the awkward thing. I'm not sure this will be official official from the NBA. Yeah. And this is where the NBA totally gets it wrong compared to the NFL. Yeah, we hate this. We might have a situation, guys, where coming up with pick 29, it'll, it'll be Adam Silver... With the 29th pick, the Pacers select, yep. and we all know, nah, this guy's going to Denver. He's going to be Kawhi wearing a Pacers Leonard. hat. Kawhi Leonard. <laughs> yes. yes. That was a draft night trade, so it was much different. But yes, in the same respects, yes. even last year. But they announced it in the NFL. They still, like, even if it's a draft night trade, they'll announce that the pick has sure. been traded. They won't have a fake, oh, here's your hat. Welcome to the Steelers. Oh, sorry, you're a Raider. Like, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> So that's Eddie's point. Like, yeah, it's it was a draft night trade, but to your overall point, Scott, it remains the same. Whether it's draft night or less than 32 hours out, 
it's still that logistic aspect of it of oh it's the Pacers selection but it's not the Nuggets have the pick and and vice versa if if the Pacers stay at 40 it'd be a Nuggets pick but it actually go to the Pacers yeah at 40 by the way just from the different mocks oh let's go of areas of that range I know you love a good mock I I know it you're looking at that Isaiah Wong Jalen Pickett Gigi Jackson range in terms of fluctuation there I know that there's no guarantee that Jackson goes that low but you're now looking at a different range of prospects that we've had conversations about already today that could be more enticing or somewhat enticing in that range than what you're looking at at 55 if they hold on to that pick so there's still value within the second round Mm -hmm. where I'm not against them trading back it's just you're adding a future first-round pick asset that, again, you could turn and trade into something else, or you could then go ahead and hold on to it next year to see what it becomes. I would lean more towards a future trade, maybe not the trades we're talking about, but a future trade down the line of moving that Nuggets pick versus it being something that's actually selected, again, given where this team wants to be a year from now. A couple other players, Jimmy, to highlight in that 40 range, you're looking at Colby Jones from Xavier, Julian Phillips possibly of Tennessee, uh, even Jordan Walsh, who I think is kind of like an Andre Iguodala 2.0. Um, he's in that range as well. I kind of like him in the second round. Scott, what about you? The guys that jump out at me in that range, if Julian Phillips somehow falls, I, that'd be hard to see. Max Lewis was just here yesterday, by the way. And I think he's slated in that range. Uh, he's a wing from Pepperdine, seven-foot wingspan. Um, I thought it was interesting. They brought back the player from um, Dayton for his second workout and wanted to see Max Lewis for the first time, a guy that Ryan Carr was noting played the saxophone. Like Those are the little things <laughs> they love and, and get deep into the weeds with these guys. But I could see if J.G. Jackson falls and if you get a guy that could be a lottery pick the next year if he would have stayed in or if not higher. Um, Trace could be on the board at that range. Uh, Ricky Council, the fourth. Omari Moore. Uh, Julian Strother, I will say. Go the Gonzaga route once more. He was in and was really impressive. Um, very mature. Another wing. Again, I think all you're looking at for the Pacers in this range, and really in this draft, is to add some depth on the wing, which is almost non-existent. Um from a defensive standpoint, shooting two-way type of guys. And, <laughs> yeah, it, it, this is the first of several moves that I think you can expect from the Pacers. We know they were going to be active. You knew they wanted to set themselves up both for this year. And in doing so, this is a be- another way to manage the books. There is one I'm just kind of surprised have. they didn't get another pick in this. There is one answer that we have with this move, and that is the idea that the 26th and 29th pick – with the value as first-rounders, albeit late first-rounders, likely weren't enticing enough to package with seven to go out and, and, and get a wing as, as, the, as the type of weight that future first-round picks would carry. We were mentioning a hypothetical of, look, yeah. here's three first-rounders. That's something that somebody like Toronto might be interested in. Well, it's three first-rounders, but two of them are on the back end. The fact that 26 and 29 weren't packaged together because you would assume all the calls are being made by the Pacers at this point to make moves, tells me that maybe that's not the evaluation they thought they would get by keeping those picks together, and they instead found this as an alternate avenue to gain draft capital down the way while keeping 26. I mostly agree with that, although I will say, if you're a team receiving picks, I don't think I'd want three in the same draft. It's fair. So now it becomes a package may become more enticing knowing if you could get a couple this year 
and one next year. Now the Pacers have their own draft picks uh, moving forward, so it's not like they couldn't have offered one of those and all of that. But I, I just right now I just don't see a move at seven. A move away from seven. Yes, I, I still believe you keep seven. I think you make you make the pick. You go with the biggest potential. Because, again, to what we talked about at the start of the show, if you're just joining us here late, this should be the last time the Pacers are in the lottery for the foreseeable future. So you got to hit, and you want to hit big. I'm not sure you want to just trade that away for a guy who has one more year under contract or two more years and is going to cost you $18, 20000000 million. You like this draft. You like the talent. You could afford to do it, though, if it was the right fit. You can for the next two done. years. Sure. After the next two years, then it gets really tricky because you'll have at least Halliburton on an extension. Miles, you by then I think you would move on from just yeah. from an age standpoint as a big turning 30. Um, Buddy could stay in the league forever. I don't think he'll come They do have bird rights though on, on Halliburton, don't they? Oh, for sure. So, I mean, like, so the, Halliburton will get done. You, you, can, you can manipulate things with the cap in such a way that you're not totally handcuffed if you feel like a 25 or 26-year-old wing that's out there. Again, not just OG, but any wing that's in that age range as long as you get an extension done with that player before they come in, you're not totally handcuffed if it's the right guy. But I'm with you on the mark that if that market's not there, you were bad this year, oh, unintentionally or intentionally. You were bad and have this lottery pick and you don't want to be here anymore. Yes, it has to be an impactful guy that carries you out of this seller of lottery picks. 100%. And that's why, that's why it's so important for the Pacers to not only nail this one, but to get a high-value pick with big potential. A lot more to come here. Draft Central, essentially, here leading up to the draft tomorrow night. Coming up at 2 o'clock, Sean Hyken covers the Portland Trailblazers. We'll discuss the intrigue at 2 and at 3 and the future of Dame Lillard and a lot more. But the Pacers have made a trade with the Denver Nuggets. Discuss that and a lot more here on the Fan Midday Show coming up. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Well, back inside the DriveHuber.com studios on the Fan Midday Show. Big news in the sports world. Reds are rallying. Reds are rallying. 3-2. Bottom of the fifth, Eddie Garrison. On watch. Jimmy, that's about the fifth different route I thought you might go with. I I, I, I like being unpredictable. we got a tie (laughs) game now. It's 3-3 Reds, right? A 10-game win trick. Biggest news of the day. No? Well, maybe second with the Pacers having their first of what would hopefully be many moves between now and Thursday night's draft conclusion. Eddie, I understand that from your editorial standpoint, you'd probably put the Reds first, and who can blame you? It's the longest win streak in 11 years. Everywhere, like... Should be on the ticker right now on the ESPN. I'm, I, I agree. We should, Even the NFL Network, they should be on the ticker. Like, come on, what are we doing? I need pitch by pitch notifications on my phone right now. It's very, very. Or very you could important. just look up at the TV. <laughs> You're right. I can also utilize many a television here in the DriveHuber.com studios. But of course, that news that Scott and I had discussed a little bit earlier, breaking by Adrian Wojnarowski about what a half hour ago, Denver Nuggets are trading the 2024 first round pick. In a 2023 selection, that's their 40th pick to the Pacers with picks 29 and 32 from tomorrow night's draft. Moving on, Scott, as we look at what is potentially available for the Pacers and where the dust settles on these moves, even if they 
have another trade in mind between now and draft night, which we expect they likely would, doesn't change anything with the seventh pick, which is likely keeping that and making a selection in your mind because they don't want this to be a team in a vicious cycle of staying in the lottery. They want to jump next year, and unless a perfect trade materializes, you do it by making your selection at seven. Yeah, I, I still believe drafting at seven is the right move. There's there's too many good options right there. They've done their due diligence. They're talking with those those top players right there at the draft combine, hosting 62 players to Indy for pre-draft workouts. Unless something is just something you just cannot pass up. I don't, I don't know what I'm. I don't feel the urgency. Some do for the team to get involved with the trade and move on from that seventh pick. Remember, it was only last year when they made their first pick inside the top 10 since 1989. Back-to-back years here, hopefully for just the last time in the next, let's call it this decade. So I think it's important to strike big time right now. Get a player that can grow with Rick Carlisle, that coaching staff, alongside Tyrese Halliburton, and so many of these players that came in for pre-draft workouts have wanted, have mentioned the fact, like, antsy, giddy about, hey, that could be my point guard because they know they're going to be a better player. Just look at Buddy Heald. You look at Miles Turner. You're going to get more shots from three. You're going to be able to attack. Tyrese takes a lot of the burden for this team in so many different ways. And if they could just shore up this wing spot and add some defense, things get a lot more interesting. Let's play the other side of this coin, which is there's not another move that happens. Where does this trade then line up in your mind if there's not a subsequent move that's made? They make all four selections Mm -hmm. and there's no trade activity from them over the next 48 hours, 36 hours. First of all, I would be a little bit surprised just because of the number of picks and the few roster spots. I don't think everybody that's currently under contract will be here next year. We don't know the way in which that will exactly shake out because there's no obvious change until you know what the draftees look like and what positions they might play. You would like to simplify and shore up that center spot with, you know, Miles, but then what is Daniel Tice? He likes it here, would love to be here, but do you want to go younger with two guys you already have and Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith? Then maybe you could convince me to keep those two on board along with Miles, but I don't think you need four of those right there. Point guard, you are covered and feeling very good about with Halliburton with Nemhard with TJ McConnell shooting guard Rick Carlisle man he loves his shooters I don't think he'll ever tell you he has enough shooters and so at, at pick 40 which the Pacers just acquired from Denver for this year's draft you might get your shooter right there or you might get a player that is young high upside like a GG Jackson that needs maturity needs some time under the system is not going to help you right away does that conversation get shifted if they decide to get the do-it-all shooter that can help contribute on the defensive end and hit i don't mean just a a shooter by name i mean a shooter in terms of positioning if they were to go if a thompson twin falls if a men thompson falls or if they were in a range where they wanted to take Maybe they really like Azar Thompson if that's the path they decide to go down. Okay. How does that change then the, the need for, for a wing ready immediately, if at all? I, I think know if, we only got like a minute to discuss that. We'll, we'll dive into it a little bit more sure. large scale, but but that's the conversation that 
will be unfolding over the next 24 hours <laughs> of where is that biggest need at seven? Is it a luxury pick? Is it a need? Is it just a fit? I mean, th- those are the type of conversations that are going to continue to be had over the course of the next 24 hours. We're going to step aside when we return. Speaking of a team that has arguably a more important draft than the Pacers do right now in terms of the state of their franchise, it's the Portland Trailblazers. They're connected to a lot of different rumors in the trade market. Sean Hiking covers the Trailblazers for Rose Garden Report. He had an interesting piece last night about the importance of this draft. We'll dive into it with him when we return on 93.5107.5 The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Welcome back into the Fan Midday Show with Jimmy Cook and Eddie Garrison. I'm Scott Agnes. Just a day away from the NBA draft, this hour, or I guess it would be last hour, Pacers already shaking up their draft assets, moving on from 29 and 32 of this year to pick up an extra first next year and pick 40, and we'll get on that a little bit later. Now we're going to where some intrigue is at the top of the draft. Charlotte at two, and then followed by the Portland Trailblazers. What are they going to do? I welcome in my friend, Sean Hyken. He runs the Rose Garden Report at rosegardenreport.com. And Sean, I, I thought it was bold, yet honest and true last night, writing uh, where the Trailblazers stand last night and how this – is is a huge and pivotal point in franchise history. What are your thoughts leading into tomorrow night? Well, I'm not breaking any news there with how you know potentially huge this draft is. They haven't had this high of a draft pick since uh, 2007 when they took Greg Oden number one overall over Kevin Durant, and you know especially in a draft where I would say most executives, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing. You know, outside of Victor Wembanyama, who's obviously going number one to San Antonio, most people think that Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller are kind of on their own tier as the two and, you know, the second and third best prospects in the draft in whatever order you want to put them in. So, whatever position, the, you know, whatever, you know, the Blazers kind of have the easiest pick in the draft, if you will, besides number one, where whichever one of those two guys Charlotte doesn't take, they're happy to take. But then there's also kind of the dynamic of, you know, they have said both publicly and privately that they still intend and want to build around Damian Lillard and try to still contend in the playoffs while he's still playing at the level that he's playing at. And he has kind of made it clear publicly that, you know, drafting a player at number three rather than trading the pick for a more veteran piece is not something that he would be thrilled if they did. So it's going to be an interesting, you know, five minutes that they're on the clock tomorrow one way or the other to see which way they go. Sean, let's start there. If they do make that selection at three, is that a clear indication that, I don't know if you want to call it rebuild or whatever word it fits best in this scenario, but is that clear that they are not building in their mind a team that will contend for a championship within Damien's contract window? Uh, not necessarily, at least not the way they feel. And I think, I think they feel, and you know, you can land wherever you want to land on this. I, you know, I will land wherever I land on it, but they feel that there are other ways that they have to get veteran talent, whether that be using the mid-level exception in free agency or 
potentially trading Anthony Simons plus the number 23 overall pick that they also have tomorrow for, you know, other veteran upgrades. Like they, they feel like they have other avenues and if they don't get a deal that they like for the, for the third pick, they're not going to trade the pick just to trade the pick. There's a very small list of guys that they are, uh, you know, w- that they would be open to moving the pick for. And if one of those guys doesn't shake free or something else, unexpected doesn't come along that blows them away they've been signaling that they're very happy to keep the pick and use it whichever one of those two guys it is and uh i you know what that what how dame reacts to that whether he ultimately asks for a trade if he does ask for a trade whether they ultimately trade him or not that like this this is this is stuff that's all up in the air talking with sean hike and sean i'm curious what are your what are your readers and fans in portland feel about this pivot potentially point in franchise history of of trying to have a guy like a Reggie Miller and Dame Lillard that's been there forever and only plays for one team versus all right that's past its expiration date let's do something else I think you know you're you, you and Scott you know this have you know being as online as we are uh having to you know there's a certain very vocal minority of fans that feel one way but then the majority kind of feels the other way you know, there, there definitely is a contingent that say, you know, they're never going to win a title with Dame. You should just trade Dame and rebuild. This, I, I think the vast majority of people would not like to see that happen. I know that the Blazers organization would not like to see that happen. I know that Damian Lillard, at the end of the day, would not like to see that happen. I, I, I think everybody is, you know, is pretty motivated uh, to, you know, get enough done to you know feel like you know there's a there's a way forward together it's just, it's just again like there's there's a small amount of you know move you know trades that could present themselves that they would think is worth it to uh you know move the third pick for especially in a draft with two guys at the top that in most drafts that aren't that don't have victor Wembanyama and it would be seriously uh you know in contention to go number one overall and especially with the new cba uh you know, being so restrictive at the top, mm-hmm. you know, having a potential star on a rookie scale deal, I think is something that they view as very valuable and that's something that they'd have to get a pretty compelling offer to move off of. And I think, and the other thing is, I think Dame knows that like Dame is a smart guy. Dame follows the league as much as anybody does, as far as players in the league do. Like he watched a ton of league pass. He knows players and teams around the league. He knows the salary cap. He knows all that stuff very well. Like he, I don't think he would want the Blazers to make a bad deal with the pick just to make a deal. I think he wants them to trade the pick for a veteran, you know, you know, for somebody more on his timeline. But I don't think he's saying, "Oh, you have to trade the pick and make a bad deal where you know it ends up hurting franchise." And Sean, I think what's interesting too, can kind of compare it here to Indy. Tyrese Halliburton was at basically all the workouts, and from your uh, stories, Dame was basically at all of Portland's workouts. What if anything do you read into that, both short term and long term? I mean, he. I don't think he would be at least showing his face publicly at these workouts if he was, you know, working behind the scenes to set up his exit. I, I, I think that's, uh, you know, that's pretty clear now. I don't really have any insight. Well, I haven't talked to him in a while, so I don't know one way or the other which of these prospects he likes more than the others. But, you know, I think the fact that he was there with the front office watching these workouts, like, he's, 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 a very, he's very involved in the process. I don't think he's dictating, oh, you, you know, draft this guy, don't draft this guy. I mean, I'll tell you this. Last year, he would have preferred that they traded the number seven pick somewhere else to get more of a win now guy and 
they got pretty close with Toronto on OG on Anobi, and ultimately Toronto wanted too much in addition to the seventh pick, and they drafted Shaden Sharp. And at the time, on draft night, Dame was kind of thinking, eh, is this really what you guys want to do to maximize my, you know, my window? I don't know if I want you guys to have drafted a rookie. And then, you know, towards the end of the season, Shaden Sharp, I think, kind of won him over, and now he's totally on board with Shaden Sharp. I think the Blazers, if they decide not to move the pick, are making the bet that, that's going to happen again with Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, whichever one of those guys is there at three. Now, is that bet going to pay off again, or is is it is it not this time? That's that kind of remains to be seen. Sean, when I look around the NBA, franchises would kill to have a player in this modern era that values the franchise the way that Damian Lillard does. And in every turn, whenever there's been a rumor mill about him potentially wanting to go elsewhere, being traded, he's responded by signing extensions or signing his most recent extension to show he wants to spend his career in Portland. The fact that the volume of Dame maybe wants out or maybe he's ready to, to finally move on because both the franchise and him are on different timelines is jarring to me because it's never been like that before with Lillard. There's been rumor mills about him being dealt, but it's never been a feeling of, wow, this might really be the time where he's ready to move on. Is this all true, or is it basically rumors at this point of Dame might actually want to take a career shift because he realized even though he loves the franchise, they might be on different timelines for championship contention? I would argue it actually got pretty close in the uh, summer of 2021 after they lost in the first round to a Denver team that didn't have Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr. And then the general manager at the time, Neil Olshay, you know, fired Terry Stotts and said that the first round exit was not a product of the roster. And then, you know, made a very controversial coaching hire in Chauncey Billups that he then tried to put on Dame once he started getting blowback for it. So I would say at that point, Dame actually was pretty seriously, and he said this on the record. I'm not breaking it. He was was pretty seriously looking around that summer saying, yeah, I don't know if this is really where I want to be. And then I think winning the power struggle with Neil Olshay that he ended up winning a couple months later and then signing the extension, I think he – ended up feeling like, okay, this is this is where I want to be. And I think he has a better and more trusting relationship with Joe Cronin, the current general manager, than he ever did with Neil Olshay. And I think he genuinely feels that Joe Cronin is, try, is going to make every effort to do what needs to be done to build a team around him. But, you know, Joe Cronin also, like I said, he isn't going to make a bad deal right. just to make a deal. Like, he's not going to, like... He's not going to trade the pick for, like, just to throw a name out there, Zach Levine, just to say, hey, look, we got a veteran guy. (laughs) It's not the right guy. You know, the better move is to hold on to the pick, and I think Dame understands that. So, you know, we we will see what happens. I don't think Dame is going into this offseason looking for an excuse to want out. He is looking for, you know, them to do enough that he's totally comfortable. Talking with Sean Hyken of the RoseGardenReport.com. And Sean, one of the bigger things, too, you've been tracking in all over the last year or two is the potential sale, eventual sale of the Blazers down the road. And I think, as you've written, and what really makes sense, too, is the fact that once there is expansion, the, the, uh, the trust or, you know, um, that will go to charity. Uh, part of that, that would not go there. They would cash in on that, which makes a big reason why Portland holds off until any kind of uh, influx of uh, additional teams here. Is that still your read on it? Do you think 
if it is two or three years down the road, do you still see uh, the Nike owner wanting to get involved and, and leave a legacy behind with that? Phil Knight, as far as I know, is still very, very motivated to buy the Blazers. I, I mean, he's 85, so, you know, not right. morbid, but, you know, he's 85. <laughs> so, you, we, you know, if we're, if we're talking three years from now, there's no guarantees of, of, of anything uh, as far as him, you know, still being around to be involved. But as far as I know, he's still very highly motivated to buy the team. And I think besides the stuff that you – I mean, just to, just to give people a little bit of – as brief of an overview as I can, ever since Paul Allen died in 2018 – uh, his sister Jody has been in charge of his trust, and one of the terms of the trust is that all of his assets have to be sold at some point, and the proceeds of that have to go to charity. And what I've been told and kind of heard and been able to gather is that she wants to hold off on selling the team in order to you know, cash in on the new TV deal and cash in on the expansion fees that are coming towards the end of the decade because that's money that she would get to keep as opposed to uh, – you know, the sale of the team, which would go, you know, the proceeds of that would go to charity. So that's kind of the motivation there, whereas Phil Knight wants to get the deal done. And I think because of some of the stories that have come out in the last year, there was one in the New York Post last year, there was one in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago, that clearly were kind of planted by Phil Knight as a way to put public pressure on her to sell. I think because of that, she is a little bit more motivated to not sell to Phil Knight because she feels like he you know, trying to, you know, bully her into selling the team to him. So I have, I don't think there hasn't really been any movement on anything since that wall street journal story came out a couple of years, uh, weeks ago. So uh, I don't think there's anything new there, but I do. I, 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 all, the only thing we know is that at some <laughs> point in the future, the team has to be sold by terms of the trust. I don't think there's a hard timeline on it. That's just relevant both because of what's the current timeline of the, the Blazers and with Dame and also the, uh, across the country you see what's going down with Charlotte and Michael Jordan and he's selling now versus hanging on for a couple of years. So that that's another factor maybe Joe Cronin and, and the Trailblazers have to factor in, probably not just yet, um, but it's definitely on their radar. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't. I don't know how much you know input into roster decisions ownership is going to have. I haven't heard anything that would make me think that it's anybody but Joe making final call on this stuff. But I'm sure ownership would not love the idea of trading Damian Lillard and not having anything that's really going to sell tickets. And then the other thing is, I understand that in a lot of cases, uh, you know, the job security preserving move for a general manager would be to just trade your star player get a bunch of draft picks and young players and say, hey, you can't fire me for five years because I have to rebuild the team. Because of the sales situation being up in the air, I don't know if Joe Cronin is really in that same spot where he could do that even if he wanted to. Because, you know, you know if, if you know, a new owner comes in and he, you know, had just traded Damian Lillard and you're at the beginning of a rebuild, the new owner had nothing to do with hiring you as a general manager. So there's no reason that, that owner has any real incentive to keep you around. But if the team is, you know, if you're able to get something big done and you're still building a round game, then they're probably just going to let you keep going for a while. Like James Jones still has his job after Matt Ishbia took over because he's still, you know, he's not in the beginning stage of a rebuild. I think if they were still as a franchise, the Suns, where they were five or six years ago before they, you know, went on this run that they're on now and a new owner came in, whoever their general manager is would have probably been out of there pretty quickly. Sean, how much does Charlotte dictate the proceedings of this trade dance that might happen between picks two and three and what Portland might do? Oh, it's huge. I mean, uh, there are some teams 
that really want Scoot Henderson. There are some teams that really want Brandon Miller. And, I mean, it's a, it's a little bit of a Venn diagram of which of those teams want which guy and which of those teams have what Portland might want. You know, the one that has been, you know, talked about a lot that I think is, you know, very real as far as a possibility is New Orleans. It's very well known that they want Scoot Henderson and that it's, you know, they're, they're you know, depending on who what you want to believe, I think it's – very at least a decent possibility that they're open to discussing something involving Zion Williamson if that means that's what they get. So you know that you know if Charlotte takes Scoot at two, that's not a possibility anymore for Portland. You know, I, I yeah, that's that's just kind of you know that that's the way it goes. It, it sounds right now, just based on everything that's been out there, everything I've heard, it sounds right now like Charlotte is leaning towards taking Brandon Miller, but you guys remember a year ago, <laughs> yep. everybody thought that it was a lock that Jabari Smith was going to go number one, and then like 12 hours before the draft, the betting line flipped suddenly, and now everybody thinks Paolo Bancaro is going to go number one. So I don't want to completely assume we know what Charlotte is going to do until they actually make it official tomorrow night, but everything that is out there right now is seeming like it's going to strongly indicate that Charlotte is going Brandon Miller. And then if that is the case, then, you know, Portland's going to have a decision to make, especially, you know, Scoot Henderson, most, a lot of teams think is the second best player in the draft after Victor Wembanyama. So you take him and you have a ton of, you know, you have, you know, a very talented prospect. He plays the same position as Damian Lillard. How's that going to work? And then, you know, are you know so do you you know try to make that work does that mean you trade dame do you you know some of these teams that want scoot henderson can you get like a zion or a mikhail bridges or you know pascal siakam or somebody like that like do you decide that's worth it like there's a lot of different ways they can go i'm glad you brought up the, the betting lines last year because that was it was almost hilarious how I think through just everybody re- reverberating, repeating the same info, we thought, you know, Jabari, Jabari, Jabari. And then all of a sudden, you know, hours before the draft, it flipped to Boncaro. I don't think Charlotte knows what it's doing. I think it's completely torn in the, the new ownership situation we saw today where Michael Jordan said he will be, the, or Mitch Kupchak said MJ will be making the pick. Well, he doesn't even have majority ownership moving forward. So that's that's interesting to me in all this. And that's why so much of this, Sean, I wanted to have you on because there's Charlotte. Charlotte, and then there's Portland, and I could see both franchises doing seismic, making seismic changes to what they're doing. Um, and I, I guess I'll leave you with this: with Zion, if you are Portland, and that is possible, how risk adverse should they be? Is this something they should be willing to take on purely just to make Dame happy? And along the same lines, is you want to buy into what could be possible with Zion in a new situation? You'd have to see the medicals. I think would be the key. Like the thing, the, and, yeah. by, and by that, I and by that I mean, you know, you look at a, somebody like Kawhi Leonard, where he has a degenerative knee condition that is just always going to be monitored during his career, and it's a chronic thing that's never going to go away and never going to get better, and that's why he can only play forty or fifty games a year. If something like that were to come up with Zion, if they were to do their due diligence and gather the medical records and stuff, and there was something like that there then I think it wouldn't be a good idea to do it. But if, if these injuries that, he, that he's had, they decided that they aren't related and it's just, you know, he's had some lower body injuries and if he can just lose some weight and get in better shape and then this stuff will go away and he'll be fine. If that's what they come back with, yeah, I'd take the swing because every time he's been healthy, he's been a top five player in the league. And the idea of him and Dane together is, you know, if you want to talk about upside, that's the highest upside move that there is on the board. So if the medicals came back, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd do it. Yeah. Good stuff, Sean. I know you'll be busy the next 30-some hours, so appreciate you taking some time here. Good to talk to you, man. That's Sean Heiken, RoseGardenReport.com.
like me, he's kind of branched out and done doing his own thing, but he's really the only beat writer Portland has. They've made a lot of changes, and so I wanted to have him on to discuss uh, all of that. And with Zion, man, Jimmy, that's a big wild card in all this. If you're a team, are you even wanting to buy in on that? I think I, I do acknowledge for the Pelicans and for Zion, I think it's best to kind of part ways, to move on. You can kind of feel from afar changes needed from both sides. I mean, look, there's two ways to look at this, right? On the one hand, Zion has had well-documented injury history. I agree with what Sean mentioned. I need the medicals to know what it is. I need a clear analysis of what you're dealing with if you're trading him as a franchise. On the other hand, and I don't think necessarily that Zion has been playing the long con on purpose, but he has his big deal now. This is the second consecutive big-name star that has been drafted by the Pelicans that has ended in disgruntled manners. Granted, the one previous was another worldly talent that actually delivered on the hype in <laughs> Anthony Davis. So I get it. Yes. I know there's a gap there. So I say yes, I would gladly take the swing on Zion Williamson if I'm a franchise. But I say that with hesitancy of I don't really know what the medicals are. Right. Everybody points to, oh, he's overweight every year and that's why he gets hurt. Okay, is that really it or is it a chronic condition? Like that's that's something I would need more clarification for before I'd be willing to go actually go and get him. You're we got some news here. Uh, go ahead. Per Sham Sharania, Celtics and Wizards are in talks of Kristaps Porzingis opting in in a trade deal. Ooh. I really thought it was going to be a red score. I'm disappointed in you, but I'm proud of you for the for the for the NBA uh, nugget there. Way, 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 way to support the show in, yes, in a sir. way that didn't yes. just solely focus on your interest. I'm proud of you. The yeah, Wizards yeah. are a team. I mean, it's obvious because they already made the one big deal with the Phoenix Suns. But I really liked what Ted Leonsis, the, the owner of the Wizards, has done with getting new management in there. Michael Winger is brilliant. He was with OKC. He was one of them that steerheaded the deal. By the way, guys, to get Paul George here. He was deep in those talks, sent, of course, Victor Oladipo and Sabonis, and then Michael Winger went out to the Clippers and now is the lead guy with the Wizards. You know they were they were going to make a change. They were just too stagnant. They were every single year, like the ninth seed, the tenth seed, which is the worst. And so they've already moved on from Bradley Beal, even though it's two years too late. And now to to work a deal for Kristaps Porzingis, you're going to lose Kyle Kuzma in free agency here. They are undergoing now the first year of a rebuild, several years overdue. But uh, Porzingis, depending on, ooh, he quietly yeah. had a really good year last year. Like that, he that, absolutely that makes, did. That, that, that makes sense to me. If you're Boston and you're trying to add another, I'd be curious what they'd give up. I would assume at least one guard. The guy that comes to mind is Marcus Smart or I don't Derek know White. See, I would I would stick with Derek White. Just I keep, would too. I was just mentioning another name. Just yeah. keep sending yeah. the Derek White game winner highlights to the Wizards, and They're, they got a lot of overlap the there. Yeah, it, it got to the point where Marcus Smart hurt them every time he was out there, yeah. and they needed more Derek White, especially in in crunch time. There, the, they've got an overlap in the point guard spot in that backcourt. I could see them moving Brogdon. on from a guy there, right? And that's it. It's those three. I think you keep two of them ideally. Um, if you're the Wizards, you have no interest in Brogdon, a guy that's 30 with injuries and and things like that. I think you would prefer Derek White. Celtics would prefer, I think, to move on from Marcus Smart. That has some intrigue. I'd be curious what it would look like from a salary cap standpoint and who exactly and what exactly they'd give up. Maybe a first Marcus Smart and something else. You'd have to make it a little yeah. bit more intriguing because Porzingis does have some value. Yet at the same time, keep in mind, as you're undergoing a rebuild, what do you like? Cap space and assets. So 
that might be enough, much like the Phoenix Suns deal. Especially with how tough things are going to get for teams that are yeah. top-heavy. Yeah, if the, if the Wizards are able to clear some cap space in all of this and get a, a pick or two and maybe a ready player to at least help them field a team, that makes some makes in, makes it to be an interesting uh, potential. But sometimes these talks, especially with the Pacers, but anytime there's public talks before anything goes down, I tend to believe they don't happen and someone wanted them out there for a reason. Yeah, I mean, that's we know the gamesmanship of front offices. That's a tale as old as time. The biggest takeaway from Sean's conversation, and I don't know whether to feel bad for Damian Lord or not, because, again, he's one of my favorite players in the league. Mm-hmm. He's gotten his money. Let's be realistic, though. Like, look, I'm Eddie can cut this. We can save it for three years down the line, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Barring something truly seismic, they're not winning a championship while Damian Lillard is on this contract. It's not going to happen. The extension hasn't even kicked in yet. And while Dame is elite, he's going to continue to play at this high level into his late 30s? Like, that's really what you're banking on if you're Portland? I, I know you want to do right by your star, but they are much more realistically in line with a team that is building three, four, five years down the line, like the Wizards will be, than they are a contender in the Western Conference, a legitimate contender, not just a seed holder in the Western Conference. I I would deal him, man. Like I, I don't know what the market is, but I know there'd be teams interested in him. I would press it's the that reset loyalty button. thing. Yeah, I get it. Think about here, make it, you know, Back here, if Pacers were in year 13 of Reggie Miller and weren't going anywhere like they were in the mid 90 I guess that would have been 10 years into his deal. Yeah. But at, if you fast forward that to 13 years, you're still in a real contending window. Like Portland's never been that. They've they've they, they, they've had iconic moments, a couple nice game winners, several from game times. Yeah, yep. pl- pl- plenty of point right. to the wristwatch. Like it's been great. <laughs> There's not been a legit window of true contention even the the one year they got to the conference finals if i'm not mistaken they were snuffed out by the warriors like in five games the it, complete roster has just not been good no. enough and and so like i get it i admire dame's loyalty but here's my issue even if there's a great relationship within that front office if it was a superstar here with the pacers and they were wanting to stay here long term i'm not okay with That's the public the frustration when you're getting your money, you're getting your long-term deal that you wanted here, but the timelines don't add up. If you if you you know what this franchise is, regardless of change of general managers, you know what the Trailblazers are. Similarly, why continue to sign up long-term, but then yeah. be mad when they're not on a window that you're at? Dame and mad Lord, in the sense you want out, by the way, not to ruin relationships. Dame's making forty-five million next year. A player uh, fifty-eight option, estimate it looks like and forty-nine. When the extension the kicks in, year. 58 and 25, 26, and 63 with a player Brutal. option that you're absolutely going to opt into at 36 years old. Correct. Yeah. By the way, Bradley Beal's got a player option. His Breaking disgusting. news. Um, yeah. He's going to opt into that in about four years. It's what, 50 mil, right? <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. not ready to wait for that opt-in. No need to to put a source on that. I think we all know what's happening there in about four years with with that deal. But it, it's it's so difficult. This is where you you try to remove yourself from the emotional equation, from the relationships equation, if you're the front office with Portland. But it's also Portland. It's not L.A. It's not Miami. It's not a destination. That, in large part, is why it's been so tough. And it's really been a challenge for them to get pieces to go along with them. They've tried. They made a couple of trades. I'd agree. As much as I love seeing player loyalty and vice versa, because I think that's 
I think they've both shown it. It kind of reminds me of the Pacers a couple years ago where it's just spoiled milk, and it's like, what are we doing here? Yeah. Can you restart this machine and provide some intrigue there? And I think if you ask Pacer fans, from where they felt a couple years ago, where Malcolm Brogdon signs an extension in the fall. Remember that one? Yeah. Unfortunately, and, and we're going to run it back. Let's see what Demonis Sabonis can do and Miles Turner. This is the year they figure it out. Regrettably, more, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. It's good more time. injuries happen, and in turn, they they decided we've seen enough. We just got blown out by the Charlotte Hornets at home. Gave up a franchise record. I think it was 154 points in January. Yeah, it's time to start. And last year, attendance was up. Interest was up. Now, not in the end of the season when they were wanting here to. Uh, to have a better pick and and rightfully so but you could feel fans cared again they were relevant again at least locally to an extent not nationally and we'll see uh here moving forward we're going to take a break here it's the fan midday show talk more about the pacers the deal they agreed to with the denver nuggets and who's in play for the pacers in the draft tomorrow night all that and more as we wrap up this hour on the fan midday show here on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Back with you for the final half hour of the Midday Show. JMV will be on as taking over here at 3 p.m. With Jimmy Cook, I'm Scott Agnes. Did get some clarity for certain during the break that it is not Denver's pick in it. So to rehash what the Pacers have agreed to, Jimmy, here, is a deal with the Denver Nuggets. The Pacers will be giving up two of the first two of their picks, the five that they had this year, right? It's pick 29 and pick 32 right there together. One is at the end of the first draft. One is at the start of the second draft. That's notable, especially from the Denver side of it. But the important thing here is... This is not uh, as the Pacers are receiving what the Pacers are receiving next year is De- is a first round pick from Denver. It is not Denver's first round pick. And so otherwise that would kind of seem like a lateral move. Why aren't they getting more draft arsenal uh, draft assets for this? Could this could be a very valuable pick. It could. It, you could probably jump up another 10 spots potentially. And more than that, you're also as I keep reiterating, kicking the can down the road with at least one of your good first-round picks. If it's the one from Houston, it's 1-4 to four protected. If it's Utah, it's 1-10 to 10 protected. Clippers and Oklahoma City, both unprotected picks. So if you're throwing a dart, you would probably say the Clippers would be the worst of those, just guessing based on where the mindset is of all those franchises. Oklahoma City continues to flounder around with all the... the draft picks they have and young talent. I guess you could say maybe they finally put it all together and take a leap forward this year, but Clippers would likely be the pick that you'd make at which point you're looking at at a playoff team selection. So yeah, likely anywhere from that 24 to 20, 19 to 24 range or 17 to 24 range, depending on where the Clippers would in theory be next year. Again, that's a huge leap because you're having to evaluate what the Clippers who view themselves as a contender will do next season. But the other three options potentially having ace in the holes or if the Clippers once again have injury struggles and, I don't know, miss out on the playoffs, it could be a very valuable pick and is less head-scratching with that new wrinkle. Yeah. 
There, there's a lot to this. It's kind of, I will say it's very complicated, texting, talking, and trying to share more info as it becomes available. But now that we've learned this and this stipulation, that it is not the Denver Nuggets pick, which presumably being one of the best teams in the league and coming off a title, they'd probably be 28, 29, 30. Now you're looking with a better opportunity here. So now I grade this because knowing that fact, I feel much better about this situation and what they were able to accomplish, and they're not done yet. No way they are, Jimmy. I can't I can't see it. I mean, four selections in tomorrow night's draft would, again, just surprise me. It does, though, rather, it does not change my view of this move, which is that they didn't view or weren't getting the feedback they wanted from the rest of the league that their range of picks, 26 and 29, were as coveted as they thought to try to get up with just those two picks to a 15 to 20 type of range. The fact that they were willing to move on with the worst of their final two first round picks and the 29th pick, the fact they were willing to move that in a separate deal for a pick next year tells me that the theorized package we had of, oh, hey, move 26, 29 and get up to that 15 to 20 range either wasn't viable or the cost would have been more than just those two picks to move up and that wasn't something the Pacers wanted to do. Or maybe just the entire time they were looking to kick the can down the road, as Scott has said. Maybe they were trying to go that route. That way, maybe they like somebody already in the 24 draft. If they've already looked that far out, they can you know, package whatever their pick falls in with that pick and then move up a little bit, get another piece to help this young roster. I don't know. It, it, I mean, it very well could be. That's that's a valid angle. I would just like to think that with the emphasis on, and not to say you can't get good players when you're a playoff team, you see it all the time, I would like to think that their emphasis is still on there's high value in this year's draft. We would like to, in theory, get back up into the first round. That seems less likely for me unless players are involved in a move to move up in the draft. And I don't necessarily think that would be in the cards. If I'm the Pacers and I'm moving any personnel with picks, I would think that is to go get a veteran versus to move up to, say, middle of the first round. Just gives them more optionality sure. next season. Sure. Yes. Love it. Gotta love it. I'm just most interested in the seventh pick and and the route in which they take here because, I mean, for example, what if what if one of the Thompson twins is available unexpectedly there at seven? Do you do do you? The star would be less so than a than a man, right? I mean, correct. Of, yeah, he's more of a a man is more of a, a point guard and really of an, an overlap. I meant. I'm sorry. I didn't mean for them fit wise. I meant. In terms of projections of the draft, it seems more likely that a Star Thompson to be there versus a man. Correct? I think so, generally speaking. But the the who knows, right? I keep yeah, correct. Sure. You hear more about Asar in the last week, but again, I also preface: usually, it's a lot of BS in the last week. Yeah, people tell you things for a reason. Agents are the there last for a week. reason. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And if you're talking to teams. You think they're really going to tell you what they what they believe yeah. or what they want or what their convictions tell them? No, of course not. They're going to keep that close to the vest because it only favors them to do so. But I'm still I'm still riding the Jarris Walker train here, Jimmy. How about you? Look, I'm not I'm not against it. There's there's only a handful of players, and even then, I, I would probably see where the Pacers are going with that would that would perplex me. Like for instance, if they were to take Grady Dick at seven. I would be a little confused by that evaluation. Not to say I don't think he could be a good player within this league. I just, there's other players I like better than him. Like if Cam Whitmore was to fall there, like Jairus Walker, the more I read and see about Taylor Hendricks, the more 
I am convinced that it was not like Rafael Barlow mentioned to us earlier. It was not just a one-off thing. It was some of it is the criticism that take place when you're a prospect from Central Florida versus being a prospect from Kentucky. Like I understand that. But yeah, if it's Jairus Walker, the more we've talked to people about where his range is, like I, I, I didn't know the figure directly offhand, whatever, north of 34% from open looks from three. How often do we see in the playoffs a team that relies on three-pointers so heavily, it come back to bite you when open looks aren't being knocked down? Like that, That's a good measurement for somebody of his role. So yeah, if it's Jairus Walker, I, I'm not going to be mad about it. The only way I'd be mad is if they... Traded back in a way that would confuse us, which doesn't seem like that's actually in the cards, or if they reached on somebody that I really don't see the immediate fit, a la Grady Dick. Yeah, I, I like his game and I like his, his skill set and what he provides. Just too soon. Yeah. To me, he he's more of a he's kind of in that range. I think Jimmy of Jalen Hood Shafino, where I I could see him at ten. But probably a little bit later on. Speaking of Jalen Hutchinson, I think his his ideal spot would be something like twelve and thirteen, Oklahoma City and Toronto. I think those two make a lot of sense. And I've also got a lot of questions on on Fieldhouse Files and and even more now on Twitter about Trace Jackson Davis. Where does he go? What what's an ideal landing spot for him? I will say Trace was just in Denver. That was one of his um, that was one of his visits. I think he finished with 13 that at least I know about. He was wrapping up a couple days ago with the Clippers. I could see him go I think as, be a really nice fit. I could see him go as high as 24 to Sacramento. I know Sacramento was big fans of him. Utah um and Charlotte also makes a lot of sense. They have they're the team now with the most picks overall in this draft including 27, 34 all the way down to 39. So Charlotte and Sacramento, I think, would be my two odds-on favorite for him. We make a big deal, almost to a fault at times in today's NBA, that big men or, or, or bigger-sized players are not able to have a functionality in the league without being able to shoot from beyond the arc. This isn't what Trace wants out of his career. I'm not saying that he's married to this. But even if his tenure in the NBA is a role player, not a true starter, but a role player that is making some type of contribution to the team... There are plenty of big men around the league where you can point to and realize that that's what they're there for. They, they know their role. They've accepted it. Again, I know Trace Jackson Davis wants to be a star in this league, and I think he very well could be. But let's say the three-point concerns are real, and he doesn't have a legitimate shot in the NBA from beyond the arc. That doesn't mean he doesn't have a legitimate shot in the NBA as a player. Denver would be a very interesting fit because there'd be less reliance on him to be a knockdown shooter as much as there would to be a complimentary piece at first with your second unit and utilizing in similar ways they were able to do with other big bodies when they needed to sub out Nikola Jokic. So that would be a very interesting fit for me. It needs to be a spot, though, where he's not he's not put in a situation where, okay, we need you to go down and knock two, three, four three-pointers a game in the first half of the season. It needs Correct. to be a good developmental spot for him as a big man, even though he's not necessarily that by the traditional sense. Completely agree. There's I, a home for him. It's just it's it's all about where the best fit is. There's so many ways in which I think he can impact a game that if you're just watching him one time... The or passing alone. Yeah, the patching... And I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration to call him being... He's able to be a central hub of an offense, much like I did with Sabonis. Sometimes, like you'll see with Draymond, those are two comparisons mm-hmm. he's used in talking with media uh, about 
what his game could be similar to of course not replicas or anything like that but you're trying to project what what he can look like at that next level and center of the floor free throw line posting up grabbing rebound and that's the underrated part i think a lot of these uh draft nicks that i've read are, are not talking enough about jimmy are his defensive uh versatility ability to block shots and go up and get boards and those a lot of those are just effort plays and, and you know with trace and this is part of his game that's really evolved over the last couple of years he admittedly was a little bit lazy was was not giving his best his first year or two at iu he even said that and then he made a huge jump the last couple of years especially this past year where arguably could have been big 10 national player of the year one of the best players in the country as a four-year guy at IU. And now, finally, I think three years yeah. later than all of us expected, he was able to test the waters. He was able to go all in and do these pre-draft workouts with teams, and he's helped his case. And I thought that would absolutely be the situation. He would look better when he got in front of executives, went through these three-on-three workouts, had lunch with executives, and really were was able to make an impression on him. And the other thing I do highlight about his game in the last couple of years He's been playing more within an NBA style. Less less so pay, space and pace that he'll be able to increase coming up with the NBA. But with Mike Woodson, he even joked at the combine, which I thought was great. He was like, I was tuned into a Knicks game, and they were running one of our out-of-bounds plays. Well, of course, Mike Woodson coming from New York. You are giddy over there, smiling. Is this uh Oh, yeah, the Reds just took a two-run home run the bottom fifth inning. <laughs> You would have thought the Pacers just made a deal based on Jimmy Smith. Well, I just I saw the fist bump from Eddie and the glee, and you saw the big you know font from from Ballied two run go ahead home run and bottom of the eighth five three Reds. Ellie De La Cruz, man, just gets it started. A little blue pit turns into a double, then Jake Fraley two run bomb. <laughs> I am most fascinated now, though, outside of seven with the idea of a selection actually being made with the 26th pick. Because again, I thought perhaps they might be in a window with 26 and 29 to move up to go get, you know, I'm just going to throw out names that would have potentially been there. At that point, maybe you're looking at more realistic range of 14 to 20 of Grady Dick. Jehoto Chafino's in that range. Chris Murray's in that range. The idea now that they're at 26, now you're looking at Trace Jackson Davis is there in that range. Jaime Hawkes is there in that range. Mm-hmm. The likelihood of them actually making that selection, okay, now we can really evaluate the idea of them making it versus trying to use it as an asset to move up. And and that's rather intriguing to me because there is a clear need at wing, but if you find somebody with an up, upside at the middle to back end portion of this draft, does that change your evaluation at all at seven of, of what you're wanting to bring in? But again, so much of that is dictated by what does Charlotte and Portland do from a movement standpoint, because right. if trades get involved, scratch out that Brandon Miller and Scoot Henderson are guaranteed to go in the order they're projected right now. And that could that could change a lot with the Pacers being right there at seven and who falls to them. Let's discuss more of that 26 pick and, and who might be in play there, who potentially we'd like to see. Rehash also Pacers getting together with the Denver Nuggets on a deal that will push back one of their picks this year and move a pick from this year's first to next year and it's a little bit better than originally reported so we'll update you on that and a lot more here on 107.5 and 93.5 the fan back for the final time here on the fan midday show thanks for joining us and being with us throughout jimmy you gotta love when when actual news breaks during the show and 
I think our initial discussion on it then changed once we learned a little bit more about the first-round pick that will be coming to the Pacers. If you're just joining us, the Pacers and the Denver Nuggets agreeing on a deal that will send the Pacers' 29 pick and 32 this year to Denver. So it's allowing Denver, a win-now team, coming off a championship to add to that right now. And for the Pacers, who had five picks coming in, it moves on from those two picks they get a first-round pick next year. It is not the Denver's pick. I'm told De- Denver's pick is not included in this deal, and that is in- important. Instead, it is the least favorable of teams that none of which I think are expected to to be contenders, just being relevant. Houston, that's their rebuilding. OKC, probably an early teen. Utah. And L- uh, LAC and the Clippers. And I would guess right now that would be the Clippers deal, but who knows what they ultimately end up doing. But they're going to want to be relevant because they're getting a new venue. They're getting their own venue right now uh, that's being built out in Los Angeles. So that becomes really interesting. Shams now is saying the Wizards, Celtics, Clippers engaged in a deal that could get interesting. Usually these three-team deals don't work out, especially if they get public beforehand. But it centers around Kristaps Porzingis going to Boston, Marcus Morris and draft comp to Washington, and Malcolm Brogdon potentially to the Clippers. They needed a point guard, and so also the next thing that I think about here is that means either, one, the Clippers know they can't get Chris Paul, or they like they like Malcolm Brogdon and what he will be able to potentially contribute there. There's a trickle down effect to every one of these deals that potentially happens. Just to clarify that, that was Marcus Smart in that move. Is that, Marcus is that, Morris. Marcus Morris. Okay, because we look at the cap numbers here, they have to clear thirty million dollars. The Celtics do at least that's the thought if they're going to bring in somebody like Kristaps Porzingis. And you look at what they'll be paying next year. Brogdon's going to make twenty two million. Marcus Smart's going to make eighteen million, sure. seventeen million for Derek White, and that's just going off of. The likely untouchables, which is their Tatum Brown tandem, that's not likely going anywhere. Even though there were rumblings after the season with how things went down for the Celtics, is well, is it time to move on from Brown? But yeah, you're looking at cap numbers, and those are the three that come to mind uh, just for the sake of it. Robert Williams, eleven million, and Al Horford, ten million. So they have pieces they could move. And again, quietly, that was a very nice season last year for Kristaps Porzingis with the role that he would take on within Boston. I I would be very fascinated to see what that looks like. And to and another wing. Now he's a bigger wing, really a four, maybe a five. But uh, Shams does add the size are working through details and potentially uh, Porzingis's thirty-six million dollar player option. And, and maybe do you agree to a long-term deal and he takes less this that this first year? Right? You talk about teams and agents working ways to make it um, satisfactory to both sides. It's only twenty-seven. That's that. Yeah. For some reason, I'd be good I mean, with him for yeah, three more that's years. Fine. Like I, I, for some reason, with how. It feels like he's been in the league forever, but he, and he has to an extent. Eight years, 2015. Because uh, he's been moved around pick. a few times. He has. He's, he's had a couple different homes in New York and Dallas and Washington now. But yeah, I mean, if if he's able to have the type of stability that he showed last year, that's an addition, no doubt, for what Boston wants to do within this window they're at. Before we wrap up and make some uh, thoughts on the, the draft, let's get to your uh, special time, Jimmy. It's that time of the day. The Jay Cook Plays of the Day. This is me, all right? I'm not a athlete. This is my way. This is how I win. 
Today's plays of the day, we're going to take the Cleveland Guardians straight up because it burnished yesterday this time against the Oakland Athletics. They did win that game, but did not cover the one and a half that that Eddie loves so much. It is high juice for giving up there, minus 180. That's kind of the trend here today. Also going to take the Los Angeles Angels over the money line, on the money line, I beg your pardon, against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Shohei Otani on the mound, and Eddie's right. Luis Castillo, former Red, on the bump for the Seattle Mariners. Might not end well for the Yankees, but I do think they go over two and a half total. Total runs. We look to bounce back after a one and two performance yesterday. Two and four on the week. Eddie, anything you have in store tonight? Yep, I'm going in that Dodgers Angels game. First five. Give me the minus a half a run for the Angels. Minus one twenty two. I think they'll be able to get to Michael Grove early. He has been treacherous so far for that Dodgers starting rotation. And plus, their offense has honestly not been great as of late. All they really have is Freddie Freeman and Mookie Betts. And I'm looking in that Mariners Yankees game. Jay Cook. Uh oh. I'm going minus one and a half for the Seattle Mariners. I think it's a it's a nice little BP day against Johnny Burrito. As well, that's I that's, Johnny, di- that's you know, disrespectful. Johnny batting practices, I call him. That's get some nice plus odds. Plus one hundred six is what I've got it at. So that's what I'm rolling with. Right. Oh, plus one twelve just got just moved up for me. We'll, we'll see how that plays, <laughs> Scott. This is the last time we'll talk to you before Monday. So I guess two part question. One, I know you've made it pretty clear you'd be fine if Jarris Walker is the selection by the Pacers. Is that who you'd like to see them take? And secondly. Is the move, the subsequent trade we think is going to happen, is it a trade that involves picks or is it a trade that brings in that veteran player that they're looking for, that key contributor to address the wing need? I think the hope is the latter there. We just don't know for certain if the opposing teams are making those players available. Um, at that said, I still I would be very interested if they're able to move up into the mid-teens for their second selection. Um, that would also interest me. I don't think they have a, They will have enough, though, with you know pick 26 and, and 40 and even 55. You'd probably have to include a player, almost certainly, a Chris Dorte, Isaiah Jackson, for example. So Jairus Walker, I think he would be my pick if the, the draft unfolds kind of as we expected. And then there's a group of a, probably seven guys that you go later on at 26 if they make that draft pick. I really like... Oh, Max Prosper for Marquette, to be sure. Um, Colby Jones. There's a lot of different guys, all of whom the Pacers brought in that I think they'd be content with. How about you? Yeah, I mean, that same boat would be totally fine if they end up with Jairus Walker. He's Scott Agnes. I'm Jimmy Cook. He'll be back in on Monday. Thanks to Danny Lopez, Rafael Barlow, and Sean Hiking. Rio Jamv is next. Keep it right here.